ever the consummate manager. Paul also wants you to know that at WrestleMania, if you get counted out or disqualified, it's still a loss. And without a shadow of a doubt, Undertaker, you are the best at WrestleMania. Compared to all the other WWE superstars, I don't have to tell you what 20-0 means. You know. You can almost say that at WrestleMania, you're the best in the world. You've never faced anybody like me at WrestleMania. Because I'm the best in the world 365 days a year. You have powers unmatched by anybody in the WWE. You answer to a higher calling. Now, I, don't, I don't have powers. I, uh, I don't answer to a higher calling or a higher power. I am a higher power. And I'm not going to tell you I was born to beat the streak or that it's my destiny. No. I'm the one man in the world that can shoulder the burden of snapping your streak. Because I'm willing to walk through hell and endure whatever pain it is March 6, 2021. And this is the second part of Psychology is Dead's countdown of the top 101 matches of the 2010s. Brock, we are into our top 50 now. <laughs> We're in too deep. We can't turn back now, Brock. Are you ready? No, but we're going to continue on anyway. Shall right. I start? Uh, you can go ahead and take it. Okay, my number 50 is a match that, uh, uh, if it's on your list, it's going to be higher. It's uh, the first of a couple matches between these guys. It's Timothy Thatcher taking on Daniel Maccabe in 3-2-1 battle at their Wet Hot Seattle Summer 2017 event. I listed this earlier at 87. Oh, did you? I totally forgot. Okay. Um. So yeah, this is... It's a match I know you you and I both enjoy a whole lot. A real big star-making match for a friend of the pod, Daniel Maccabe. Um, and it's just some real classic pro wrestling shit. Like, the best wrestler in the world, Timothy Thatcher, coming in and, and making a stop in some weird little fed and, and giving some hard-working up-and-comer the best match of his career so far and, and pushing him into the limelight. Um, and on top of that, it's it's... It's great grappling from both these guys, like, specific to the roles they're playing as this, like you know, underdog, veteran, like, big name, little name kind of thing. Um, Thatcher's real domineering and controlling. His cutoffs are real deliberate and forceful. He's real um, dismissive in everything he does, like, in terms of his attitude as well as his physicality. And Maccabe's far more uh, reactive, far more desperate. Like, you feel you feel this tangible sense that, like, he doesn't have things mapped out two or three moves down the line the way that somebody like Thatcher might. Um but, you know, he sticks with it and does what he can to survive. And he finds an opening to lock in, like, one of the coolest submissions, one of the coolest submissions I'd ever seen. And, it, and it's enough to win him the match and, and really, like, make a name for himself to the point that today he's one of the bigger names on the independents. Yeah, you know, um, again, it's not often that you can, like, pinpoint, like, a direct moment in which someone, like, right. feels like they take that next step. And, like, when I go back and watch older Daniel Maccabe matches that were, um, available on uh, 321's YouTube channel and, like, whatever else I could find. Like, again, like, you talked about him um, extensively when we did the 2017 show, is that, like, he's he's been one of your favorite wrestlers in the world for a long time. Yep. And, like, you know, when you go back and uh, watch it, it's like, yeah, I totally see why. Because he's that good and he's been that good for a long... And, he, and he, he been that good for a long time. And um, I only got one of his matches on uh, uh, onto this decade list. Uh, but, oh, really? 
Yeah, but but hope but hopefully uh the uh twenty twenties uh will be um very prosperous for him and we can uh squeeze some more on there. Um my number fifty, I think you said earlier, not sure. It's Kazushka Okada versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from New Beginning in Osaka uh twenty twelve. No, this one did not end up making the list. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Um what is there to say about this match that hasn't already been said, right? Yeah, totally. Um like we know this we know the story. We know the story. We know that this decision and decision to go with this is one of the gutsiest booking decisions in modern history. We in, know in that, some ways. We, we, we I think we've talked about how I think it's it's kind of obvious in, in some ways. But but totally like at the time it, it came out of nowhere and it, it felt huge. Mm-hmm. Um this led to Kazuchika Okada be like you know taking off and was like this was the start point of oh he completely redeemed himself after how he looked at Wrestle Kingdom and right. the guy was off to the races from there. This is the starting point of the best in ring feud or best feud for my money of all time. Like this is a lot of different things, but I think in it being a lot of different things, the match itself gets lost, and the match uh-huh. itself is really good. Um, yeah, better than people probably give it credit for when looking back on it. And like, I do have more Tanahashi and Okada matches higher, but like, this match is awesome. This match is great. Like, everything that you could love about that first year of Okada is on full <laughs> display here. Going mm-hmm. up against a Tanahashi who can be equally as dismissive, equally yeah. as e- equally as a prick, and he's clearly not taking this dude seriously at all. Right, and at every corner, Okada is just doing something that isn't really normal for what New Japan, for, you know, for what New Japan, for what New Japan had going on at this point. Okada was busting out these submissions. His transition spots are a little different. He's not the same. He's he's not he's not Nakamura. He's not Naito. He is a completely different foe, and mm. Tanahashi is completely befuddled by him. And to watch Tanahashi try and try as he might to, you know, do the usual tricks, it's almost, it's too little too late by a certain point. Okada Okada already has thrown him off, and Tanahashi never gets that control back. And with how significant this match is, like, this is, like, like quite literally, like, one of the more like significant matches that we can, like, that we can directly point to that have right. taken place in the last, like, you know, however many, 25, 30 plus years. Like, it really yeah. is that kind of match. <laughs> but, like, in all of that, the match itself deserves a watch outside of that lens. Mm. And I know it's asking for a lot. I know it's asking for a lot to, like, almost, like, detach yourself from, like, the rest of the context that then happens after. Like, you know, who am I? <laughs> you know, you know, Mr. Dragon Gate Boy and long-term storytelling and shit <laughs> to talk about, like, removing context in order to, like, truly appreciate something. But, like... Yeah. The context almost became bigger than the match itself with this. And I think that this match definitely deserves um another watch uh for some people because while Invasion Attack and the Wrestle Kingdom and some of the Wrestle Kingdom matches and other stuff may be better in term I guess on in ring merit and like is further and deeper into their story. This starting point, this first chapter, is an excellent match and mm-hmm. deserves just as much respect. 
Yeah, it didn't it didn't make my list, but it's it's still like their third or fourth best match together. It's really great. I'll tell you what did make my list though. Number forty nine, a match that we talked about just last year, uh, one that's not going to make it on yours. It's Eddie Kingston taking on Jonathan Gresham at Progress's Chapter ninety two show. I can't believe you because this is my number one. Oh wow, that's really <laughs> surprising. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later then. So what's your forty nine? All right, go ahead, sir. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, this is, um, I don't know, I, I, I spoke at length about it last year, uh, real emotionally too, <laughs> but it's, it's, I don't know, it's just my kind of match, like it's, uh, have you, have, it's you, incredi- have, you, have you watched it since then? Yeah, because okay. I, I rewatched everything on this list. Okay, I'll in order to get it on here. All right. Um, and so, it's an incredibly simple, like 10, 12 minute match brought to life by two colorful guys giving like really charismatic performances, um, not necessarily a match that has like. Not necessarily a match where a lot of spots occur, but it's a match that's full of incident, I would say. Like, it's it's two guys reacting to each other, two guys in conversation with each other, um, and, and, and really bringing, bringing a lot of life out of that. Like, it's, I don't know. This match, to me, like, it feels like the difference between, like, real acting and people just, like, reciting lines. Whereas, like, if you, you put two random wrestlers in here and have them recount this match move for move, moment for moment, it's probably not going to feel the same way because like these two guys are very specifically two charismatic wrestlers, two guys who can really project a whole lot into a little bit of space. And they do that here with just a, a weird little mid-card match, and it, and it speaks volumes to me. All right, my number 49 is Akira Tozawa versus KZ from uh, Dragon Gate Gate in Osaka, February 28th, 2015. Oh, this is a title match, right? It's like a Brave Gate title match? Yeah, this, yeah, this is a Brave Gate title match. Okay, you take this one away. I barely remember it. It's funny to look back on this match because when Tozawa leaves, like, KZ does become the new Tozawa, like, in so, in so, many, in so many ways. Um... But this is Akira Tozawa finally went winning singles gold in mm-hmm. Dragon Gate. Uh, a guy that arguably had been the best guy in Dragon Gate for that four-year stretch um, when he returned from Excursion. A guy yeah. that had, an, had an, an incredible Excursion, as we talked, as we touched on uh, with his Shingo match from 2011. And a guy that just was like a true workhorse for the company. A, a period of Dragon Gate where like you can look at guys like 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 Shingo and like uh Yoshino and even Yam- and even Yamato and like they're putting on really strong performances, really good stuff all the way throughout. And Akira Tozawa is right there with them, if not even above them. And we're talking about one of the best baby faces of all time here too. By this point, this guy uh uh leaving the heel leaving the heel unit uh then going into then going into the founding of Monster Express and uh for my money and uh. Probably for some other people, the best unit in Dragon Gate history, the most likable unit in Dragon Gate history, and seeing him uh, become like almost like the face of Dragon Gate, at least for me. Like there's Shima and there's Mochizuki and all that stuff, and like I know what I'm saying could even uh, be viewed as kind of ridiculous to say like, oh, well, Kirito's I was like the face of Dragon Gate, but like I started watching Dragon Gate because I wanted to follow Kirito's career. I right, saw right. I saw Akira Tozawa in his excursion and fell in love with him and I wanted to follow the rest of his career after that so I started watching Dragon Gate. So I come into this 
him and K- him and Casey both kind of like you know because Tazawa more so like had elevated to kind of like that weird upper echelon kind of main eventer but not really space he's part of the big six at the very least yeah part of the big six but then like also didn't get the hold of Dreamgate or do anything like you know really super significant and then KZ was a career like lower card guy yeah. for for like for the for the most for the most part up until this and to see these two and what like these two kind of represented go out there in Osaka and have an excellent match like I can't stress enough like I'm not sure it'll do it. It'll it'll like do for you as much as it does for me, but it's mm. really great for people that always criticize Rangate. Sometimes you know, sometimes rightfully, sometimes wrongly, and uh, throw this out there of like you know the limb selling gets ignored and this and that. Like it happens. It happens sometimes. It is a true. It is a true criticism. But then here, Akira Tozawa's arm selling is just so good. It's great. It's great work from Tozawa. One of the best babyface performances. Uh. Hmm. of the decade for me and in all this action and all this uh you know uh, a mile a minute stuff because this is akira tozawa and kz we're talking about two of the most exciting right. wrestlers on the world this is such a rewarding and gratifying moment as an akira tozawa fan you know it's only the brave gate you know like previous holders you know was kz and jimmy susamu and flamita and pack and like other people like this is the Brave Gate. It's not the most important thing in the world. And future holders are fucking um, Kaito, you know, Kaito Ishida and Keisuke Okuda. Like, it's not the biggest thing in the company. It's like, you know, the second singles belt. And you can argue yeah. it's like the fourth most entitled, like, you know, third third or fourth, depending on how they yeah. give out the Triangle Gate give it any given year. But it means the world to me because it's Akira Tozawa's first taste of real singles gold. And... The guy had busted his ass and been so good for so long, and like, whatever the story is with him and Dragon Gate, and like, the mistrust or not liking him that may exist, this guy is too good to deny. And even if that, and even if being too good to deny didn't lead to him being a Dreamgate champion or being the one to dethrone Yamato or being the one to dethrone any of these reigns, he still got his moment. And it still means more to me than a lot of things on this list. And there are matches that are better uh, from Dragon Gate. I have a few Dragon Gate matches ahead of this. But in terms of uh, pure satisfaction, this will stick with me for a while. And this was um, a whole weekend kind of like that. Um, Tozawa beats KZ and wins the the Brave Gate. Uh, Sachi and Yoshino beat uh, Mad Blanky to win the twin gate and uh this is uha's uh send-off and with that mm-hmm. with that really good match against bb hulk so like if you were a monster express fan this was like a really fucking emotional weekend yeah it was yeah this champion gate weekend thing yeah yeah it was a really emotional weekend uh if you were a dragon gate fan especially a monster express fan and mm-hmm. uh yeah like these years later it still sticks with me yeah more of that 2015 dragon gate goodness uh, why it's fuck man why did not more upload it on you on yeah absolutely it, it sucks how much of that has just disappeared um really wild to think that kz of all people got the brave gate before tozawa did it's insanity it's, <laughs> it's real weird and then like akira tozawa like then loses it to katoka yeah like like another guy like another much younger guy yeah it's like like like, like the <laughs> oh god <laughs> very strange 
Uh, well, my number 48, moving on from there, is uh, another match from a matchup that we talked about a whole lot at the end of the last pod. It's Hiroshi Tanahashi taking on Katsuyori Shibata in the 2013 G1 Climax. All right, I don't have this one, so take it away. Um, so, <sighs> kind of stinks that you had your Shibata Tanahashi matches ranked where you did because so much of my notes are based on what I would have said about the 2014 Kobe match that I didn't quite get to say because you took the you took the brunt of the <laughs> of the discussion about it. Um, but yeah, like this is still. Uh, so this is the first of their of their matches of their uh, of of their four matches together uh, after Shibata returns to the company after so many years, um, and so this is still really early in that process. Still, like Shibata has only been here for like a year at this point. This is uh, the day of the finals of the G One. This is back when they used to do they they used to still do block matches on the same the same night the same show as the finals, um, and so he showed up on the day of the finals in 2012, and here he is again. Uh, the day of the finals in 2013, leading the block uh, in a four-way tie where he's beaten everybody. And and so he just needs he needs to not lose this match. And Tanahashi has to win this match uh, in order to advance. And so it, it makes for a really dramatic, um, really frantic situation that really works well with where Shibata is at this point in his career. Like, this is still early in his comeback. And so um, he's still really... His stuff is still really raw and refreshing. Um, and so because of that and because of the franticness of the situation, it makes for like the scrappiest version of this match. Um, feels almost like almost uncooperative at times. Like we talked about uh, the, the the ideological differences between these guys, like the, the personal differences that they had brewing for the better part of a decade. Um, and that really comes through here in a really direct way, in a real palpable way, I think. Like, there's there's points where Shibata is so headstrong that he seems to forget spots, or forget, um, specifically, he seems to like forget when he when he's supposed to stay down for a spot, and so, like, Tanahashi has to, like, sometimes forcibly shut him down, just be like, no, you gotta, you gotta stop here, because, <laughs> like, we're, we're, we're trying to build to something. And it's, and it's so fun to watch these guys, like, crash into each other, to watch them butt heads in front of, like, a really hot crowd here in Sumo Hall. Like, like, New Japan has only gotten, like, by every conceivable metric, New Japan has only gotten more popular in the years since then. But, like, I don't know. Every time I watch this match, I'm blown away by how hot the sumo crowd, the sumo hall crowd is um, for these, you know, generational rivals who hadn't, hadn't had a match of any kind in seven and a half years, I guess. Like, they didn't even have build-up tags in this to, to lead to this match. Like, this is their first match since 2006. Um, and it features a great finish, like a, a great moment of of Tanahashi, our ace, coming through in the clutch. Um, Shibata, like, has not only, like, dominated most of this match, but dominated most of the G1. Like, just totally blown through people with these short little bite-sized matches, like, much, much shorter than even your typical G1 match was in this era. Um... And so he comes into this just like on a roll and totally takes apart Tanahashi, um, a guy who's struggled in some ways, like a guy who's like lost to Tomohiro Ishii in Cork and Hall, you know. Um, and so Shibata's got all this momentum toward the end, uh, having blocked the high fly flow, having avoided most Tanahashi's leg work, having connected with, with a sleeper and with a PK. And it looks like he's about to win. Um, but instead of just going for 
a pinfall after that penalty kick, he decides to one-up it with um, a shout-out to a friend of his. He decides to do the GTS, the go-to-sleep, in, in, in honor of his friend Kenta, a guy he used to tag with in, in uh, Pro Wrestling Noah and, uh, and an old friend of his from way back. Um, but he gets caught up in the moment, and when he goes for this move, Tanahashi's able to reverse it into a cradle and get the one, two, three with a flash pin out of nowhere. And it's, and it's just awesome. Like Tanahashi is completely spent afterward. Like he can't even get up off the mat. He's got nothing left for the finals. And Shibata, the guy who's in way better shape is left like head down against the mat, just smashing his fists. So frustrated him. So, so frustrated in himself. So embarrassed. And I love that. Like, it's just, it's, it's everything I want from this feud and from these two guys wrestling each other and in the sort of storytelling I love in wrestling. You know, it's funny to hearing you hearing you talk about this is that like then like and I feel like this kind of gets forgotten when people talk about that G1 final is yeah. that yeah, Naito gets the win, but like they Tanahashi made made made, made damn sure that yeah. people remember, hey, I just fought Shibata and I'm uh-huh. extremely tired. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> like you know, already kind of like planting the seeds. Like, eh, did Naito really deserve to win the G one? <laughs> and it, I, I guess it played out. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> it was a political hit. Uh, uh, my number forty eight is Dick Togo versus Antonio Honda from DDT Ugh. Sweet Dreams, January thirtieth, twenty eleven. Yeah, another heretic moment for me because I don't have this. Um, well, let me ask you before I get into it: Is this like a thing where you don't? Well, like it, like it never had a chance, or do you feel like over time, like the way people revered this match might have like rubbed off on you? No, it absolutely had a chance because like there was a point in time in which I liked this a lot, and okay. I think, I think I've just gotten kind of, um, I don't want to say like more discerning or anything like that, but like, I don't know, like I look at Dick Togo's run during this period. And it feels just kind of flat to me in a way that it it, it used to not. Um, and it also stands out to me way more how little his opponents contribute to these matches. And I, I like Antonio Honda as much as the next guy, but like he's not a guy for these big dramatic title matches like this. And he doesn't end up doing a whole lot in this that I care about. Um, and it's sort of hard to justify putting a match like this on my list when when it's a one-man show, and that one-man show isn't as exciting as it used to be for me. Um, it's definitely a one-man show. I would say that, like, the reason why this match, like, does become, like, this, like, almost, like, folklore thing is because of the fact that it is, because it is Antonio Honda. Like, because because of the fact that, like, if you're even, like, vaguely familiar with DDT, like, this isn't one of the guys that you think of, or, like, the guy that, like, had, like, matches being pimped. This isn't fucking, yeah. you know, Daisuke Sakimoto when he would win the belt, or fucking, um, even Masa Takanashi. It's not Shuji Ishikawa, Kode Ibushi, or Kudo, or Hiroshima, or, yeah. uh, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's, it's, none, it's none of these people. Like, this is, like, Antonio Honda, like, fucking serious, like, him versus Dick Togo, and, like, it yeah. blows away your expectations, like, and I think that, like, you know, Maybe that kind of uh, surprise factor, maybe um, you know, lacking that. I guess like once you've seen, like once you've seen this match, I I I can see it affecting it. I don't think that, I don't know if that was the case with you, but um, for me, I still love Dick Togo's performance here. Uh, world class stuff here. These right hands are stuff that should be preserved and framed 
in some kind of pro in some kind of pro wrestling museum. Uh, Togo's control is as good of control you can ask for. Like you know, we usually think of control segment as something like like that's like usually like has some kind of focus. Like it's like arm, leg, whatever. Like you know, like there's usually some kind of focus there. It's rare that when we like praise a control segment, it's just a real thorough ass kicking. Like not everyone can do that. You know, like Brock Lesnar can do that. We've seen Barbaro Cavernario do that with Soberano. Like, but not everyone can do just a straight up thorough ass kicking. Yeah. The way that Dick Togo performed here, just beating the ever living shit out of Antonio Honda and punching him. And Honda, who like if you're familiar, if you're familiar with DDT, like isn't a guy that even had anything up to this level before or afterward. It's a complete yeah. moment in the sun kind of match. That yeah, he might not he like he like he might not be contributing very much to it, but like I don't know in a weird way, the fact that he's even the guy in it is what gives it the, is what gives it the appeal. Like, could this be a guy like Ken Oka? I guess like feel like feel like feel like feel like filling the same role. Right. Maybe, but I don't find Ken Oka as like endearing as Antonio Honda is as like Antonio Antonio Honda's like, you know, a little bit more of a little bit more of an out of shape guy, you know, doesn't look doesn't look very doesn't look very athletic. Um and just like, you know, someone that like does look like pretty real, you know, pretty goofy and unintimidating. And to see him go out there and fight really mm-hmm. hard and give it all he got in this unif- in this unification match, you know, facing a fucking legend in Dick Togo who's out on a mission, mm. out on a warpath in DDC, like I don't know. It hits me for, it hits for me for that reason. So like everything that you're saying is totally valid, totally fair, and can see exactly where you're coming from. But I think the fact that it is Antonio Honda like mm. is what get, is what like still gives it um I guess that same appeal uh these years later. Yeah, it's not like it's it's really not all that far separated from something like the Virus versus Metallica match from 2019 that I'm big about that we're gonna talk about later. Um, this moment of like a, a guy who never was like getting his moment in the sun. Like, there's something appealing in that. All right, what's your next pick? My number 47 is a match I knew I know you uh, love just as much as I do, but I'm not sure if it's gonna make your list. It's a uh, Walter taking on Ilya Dragunov in the. WXW 16 karat gold tournament finals in 2017. Uh, yeah, I have a higher. Okay. Um, the weekend, uh, actually, you haven't said this yet, so you probably have a higher than me. It's uh, my number 47 is Kevin Steen versus El Generico from PWG Steen Wolf. Yeah, I have that higher as well. Okay. Uh, and then 46 for me is another one of our Beyond Wrestling matches, this one coming from 2015. It's Biff Busick taking on Donovan Dijak from Beyond Wrestling's Life Sucks and Then You Die. No, but this is really good, and I'm surprised I made your list. Yeah, it was um, it was one of the last matches I watched for this project. Um, I think just, I think our friend Sam uh, from the We Don't Know Wrestling podcast network that this is being released on. Um, I think Sam mentioned like Dijak versus Callahan or something like another beyond match that he really enjoyed. And it made me think like, huh, you know what? I don't have any Dijak on here. And I decided to watch some stuff and, and see if any of it would make it. And this one did, it was one of the last things to get put on the list. Um, and a big part of that was just like, it felt so refreshing to see these two guys who I like a whole lot getting 
um, getting the opportunity to actually stretch their legs and, and utilize their strengths properly without being hampered by shitty gimmicks and, and piss poor booking and production like they are in WWE these days. Um, this is early on in Dijak's uh, run and beyond and, and pretty much his single star making match. Like he's got a couple performances here that I think really, really rise his stock, but like this is the real big one um, insofar as he's facing like the ace of beyond wrestling. Um, the month before this, he defeated Eddie Edwards uh, in a in a in a in a singles match in pretty commanding fashion. Um, and afterwards, I think attacked him or something, or or did something like he drew the ire of both Brian Fury and Drew Cordero after this match in any way. And so Biff comes here after I think being gone for the last show, and he comes back defending his home promotion as well as one of his trainers and and his booker and and one of his great rivals even um, from this new big bad. Um, and I stress big bad because at the core, this is like, this is a big man, little man match. Like I wouldn't necessarily call Biff a little man. Like he's short as far as like overall wrestlers are concerned, but, um, he's still, you know, a large built guy, uh, compared to your average person, but he, he struggles to get anything going against a young, agile, quick thinking, big man like Dijak, um, and the match slowly simmers for the first half as, as Biff tries and fails to get anything going against this guy. And as Dijek methodically just takes him apart, especially um, especially after he uh, sends him headfirst into the corner post and busts him open. Um, but then halfway through, this really kicks into gear and just shoots off into the fucking stratosphere. Uh, starting with uh, one of the wildest spots I've ever seen in which... Um, I forget how he does it. It's probably just an uppercut or something. But but Biff knocks Dijak out of the ring somehow and then comes sailing over the ropes with a gorgeous Superman dive. Doesn't even touch the ropes or anything. Just sails over. And Dijak catches him and just flings him. Just whips him into the corner post, spine first, and onto the floor. And from there, they really don't ever let up. And, it, and, and these guys are able to shine in the way that they don't get too much anymore these days. You get... Um, you get all this exhilarating energy from Biff as he as he slowly makes a comeback and as he as he comes back with a vengeance on this guy, like the sort of thing that um, we really haven't seen in wrestling since like the heyday of someone like Sammy Callahan, like I mentioned. Uh, we get a lot of trash talk from Dijak, something I love a whole lot that we don't really get to see these days, even if he is like the the mouthpiece of a big heel faction. Um, like uh, after he does this. After he, after he does this wild spot where he just whips the dude in the corner post, he sits down next to, to Biff as he's sitting there, like, writhing in pain and bleeding all over the floor. And he just goes, what happened, Biff? Like, like these people used to love you. You used to be the hero here. Like, what happened to you, man? Just, like, totally embarrassing him. And uh, uh, I love Dijak's bumping and selling. Like, like, really, outside of, like, someone like Brock Lesnar, someone who I think of as, like, an all-time great wrestler, like, he's got some of the best big man bumping and selling I've ever seen. Totally. Something where he, like, he he's physically able to do these bumps that are really huge and that I wouldn't expect him to be able to take. But he also, he also like, um, he also planes them out in such a way that, like, it, it really, like, Biff has to struggle so much in order to get him down like that. And it makes them feel big in a way that um, other big men who just bump around for anything aren't able to do. Um, and we get plenty of all this stuff as these guys just blast each other in the face a million times in the last half of this match with, with Biff doing everything he can to mount a comeback and get revenge for his friends. And it's 
it's everything I want from these two wrestlers. And it's, it reminded me of why I thought they were two of the most exciting wrestlers in the world just a couple of years ago. And, and how that's been, that's been sanded down or held back in so many different ways in the last couple of years. Yeah. I didn't get a chance. I didn't get a chance to, uh, rewatch this one. Honestly, I didn't even think about this, like this match as, um, uh, as I was, as I was, as I was going through this. So, I guess would you would you say that this is better than that Sammy versus Dijak match that Sam was talking about? Yeah, um, I think if I recall, I, I remember thinking that one was like a little uneven or that it like drags on a little bit too long. Whereas this one, it's a longer match and it and it takes a while to really get going, but it ramps up and and finishes exactly at the right time. I think whereas that one that one sort of peters out in a way that's frustrating. All right, my number forty six is. Young Bucks versus Golden Lovers from New Japan Pro Wrestling Strong Style Evolved, twenty eighteen. A good match, a good match that I I like surprisingly, but it it didn't come anywhere near this list. Um, I think this is the first time I've had to encounter like a match that like uh, you know we've like already talked extensively about so far on uh-huh. this list. So yeah, like I still I still really enjoy this when I re- when I re- when I rewatch rewatched this um. A lot of this stuff, especially from Matt Jackson and Kenny Omega's interactions and yeah. Nick Jackson's apprehension and how he eventually just says fuck it and starts wrestling this for real and Kenny's apprehension and him trying to prevent Coda from killing either of these two <laughs> um, yeah. still holds up. One of my favorite spots of the decade is them going for the more bang for your buck and Matt Jackson so hurt and out to prove himself that he, instead of following up with the moonsault like usual, that he... um decides to just dive on uh Kenny Omega who is lying on who's lying on that table on the outside of the ring such a neat little spot there that I love and I think is uh super memorable one thing about one like a cool like, like just for his coolness and like the way that his shot looks so looks so great um but two just the kind of like psychological aspect of Matt Jackson isn't really concerned about winning this match really he's kind of been being driven off of emotion and uh all that still holds up for me um and we can move on now (laughs) a little abrupt there okay (laughs) what were you to say about this like Uh, yeah i guess like it's it's good stuff like some of the best some of the best selling of the decade which is weird to think about but yeah matt jackson really impressed me in that match yeah uh, my number 45 is a match I know you and I have talked about before and really enjoy. It's uh, the first of a couple of meetings between these guys and the only one to make it on this list, for good reason, I think. It's L.A. Park taking on Roosh from a Lucha Libre Elite show on July the 14th, 2016. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that next episode. Okay. Um, and my number 45 uh, is a match that will... I'm not sure. We're, I'm not sure we're talking about the, talking about it this episode. It's uh, Dragon Lee versus Kamatachi from uh, CMLL uh, Super Viernes on December fourth, twenty fifteen. Yeah, we're. Um, I forget where it is, but we're going to talk about that later. There's a lot more crossover on this than I expected, really. Yeah, um, it's like it's like it's it's interesting. Like obviously, like the big like the bigger picture stuff yeah. like there's some crossover but then like the way we filled in like the little in-betweens like definitely like started like started to uh change a lot yeah all right my number 44 is a match that uh seemingly i was the only one to really get a kick out of um but it's a 
That's another match from a promotion you and I both love. It's Trevor Lee defending the CWF Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight title against Alex Daniels from CWF Mid-Atlantic's 80s Night on uh, April the 29th, 2017. No, did not uh, make my... was not one of the Trevor defenses that made my list. Yeah, it's... I, I was definitely, like, the only person who we knew that was really over the moon about this one. Um, but it's just... It's just a classic sort of title match done as well as you could really ask for. And it really spoke to me. Like, it features uh, uh, a promising, cocky young heel and the best babyface champion of the decade duking it out. Um, It's got a foolproof structure. Like, the first ten minutes illustrate that Daniels simply isn't on Trevor's level when it comes down to it. And 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 the the Daniels just stooges around a whole bunch, providing tons of comedic flavor and and, and getting one up by Trevor in all these different little ways. Um, in what is like his second match in the company, I think. Like it's really funny that this is even a title match. Like the way they got to this was really interesting, I think. Um, but then the middle ten or twelve minutes finds Daniels suddenly in control after making some clever cutoffs and and taking. Uh, taking advantage of like a really wild car crash bump in which Trevor goes like rib first into like the edge of the stage that is like for once not directly up against the ring here in CW, uh, CWF in the in the sportatorium um, there's like a little bit of space there and, and Trevor gets sent off the apron and goes rib first into the fucking the edge of this wooden stage and it, it really takes a lot out of him um, and so the middle chunk of this match you got Daniel's like uh taking control and working this guy over and, and really milking it out for all it's worth. Um, but then finally in the last 10 minutes or so, he's slowly losing control and slowly coming to realize that as Trevor gets back in his groove, um, even as the challenger pulls out his biggest stuff. Um, and it's just, I don't, it's a classic title match. Like I really love it. Like two guys doing everything they can to get the people to hate this loud mouth, obnoxious heel. Who's not as good as he says, like even when he's not like I said like this is his second match in the territory like even when he's not really that well established so far um they really get these people to to cheer or to to boo for Daniels and to cheer for Trevor um and and make it make them believe that this guy might be able to beat their beloved champion out of nowhere and um slowly making them realize oh that's not going to happen and and knocking the guy down to size and 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 making the um making the, the, the valiant baby face come back emphatically and definitively and, and win in the end. Like it's, it's everything you could ask for in a match done basically without flaw and with plenty of flair. And it's, it's just tons of fun. Yeah. Like, man, it's a, it's a, it's so weird. Cause Alex Daniels like really was someone that yep. I was super into. And I wanted to see like how the guy, how that guy was going to develop. He as, was really good. Yeah. As the years went on, I was like, man, like, if like obviously this guy would have been signed by now, like this yeah. guy, like oh absolutely, yeah, this guy would have gotten snatched up. So like, who knows how much of him, um, how much of him we would have real, we would have realistically gotten. Just totally. like, man, like this guy was so fun, and yeah. this match, like, it, like it's really fun, like no, like you know, in no small part to him. <laughs> uh huh. It's it's a real shame he was such a shithead. All right. My number forty four is Zack Sabre Junior versus Walter from Progress Chapter seventy seven. Pumpkin Spice Progress. No, oh, you didn't have to say the name. <laughs> I, I I didn't say for the other one, but I wanted to specifically do it for this one. <laughs> okay, fine. I don't have this one on my list. I uh, I'm actually kind of down on this one, so it's all you. Yeah, I remember I remember you being uh particularly down on it. Um, 
and I get the, and I get the reasons why. Um, I guess for me, like seeing this like in the spotlight that I think that these two kind of eventually deserved, um, for yeah. this for this matchup does something does something for me. Um, they've had tag team matches against each other. Um, you know, a myriad of singles matches. You know, all over from WXW. Um, eventually, eventually, you know, eventually, in Evolve, um, a Progress WrestleMania weekend show had a had a match between them. PWG, you know, taking this all over, but like it never had the stakes that this one has had. I don't believe, and um, it's one of the most violent and mean and petty and stubborn matches that I saw all decade. It is extremely violent and gross and it, it, it hits a lot of the same notes that uh the walter and zach matches do hit starting starting yeah. starting off with some mat wrestling zach does you know zach does his bridge and uh walter you know goes in and try to like you know jam jam his neck up and uh you guys we get some neck work from uh from walter here that i think is one of the more underrated parts of the match that as zach is going and zach is doing his work trying to chop Walter down and catch up after this uh, beatdown Walter puts on him. Zach sells his neck really well um, for the major- for the majority of this match. And it comes to a head when Zach does the European clutch and he goes to go do his, um, the bridge that goes with it. And he immediately like spasms up and like lets go of the hold, uh, you know, after putting that much pressure on his neck. And I think that's one of like, you know, that uh, part of it, does get does get lost but other than that like this is weirdly enough like even this is like you know zach is full-on heel in new japan by this point and it's kind of like a dominating mm-hmm. commanding presence everywhere he's everywhere he wrestles by now this is oddly a babyface performance and just like how um resilient and persistent and it, it persistent it is um yeah. is super endearing in a way that i think a lot of zach babyface performances uh might not be for a lot of people. I think that Zach has a baby face. Um, he had, while he has good matches and while I think that there is like a coolness aspect of him that does lend to him being a baby face. He's a, he's a natural heel. He's a totally natural heel. And it's crazy that sure. it took so long for him to like, you know, uh, you know, be given that role of being a heel. But like this kind of became like the, uh, the blending of both of those aspects of Zach to, have the person that's a little bit more brash and disrespectful, um, like the heel Zach that we came to see um, yeah. in twenty seventeen, and then bring that kind of fiery baby face resilience. And I can't this I can't say there's a lot of matches that really kind of like walk that line like that. So when you bring uh the interesting character aspect of uh of Zach there, the chemistry that Walter and Zach have had Walter and Zach have had for ten years. And uh, great selling and a lot of violence. You get one of the best matches of the decade. Yeah, I don't know. Like it just, um, we talked about it a couple of years ago when this came up on the wrestling or the the, the match of the year podcast. Um, but yeah, like comparing it to the the other Zach versus Walter match I have on my list, like it, this one just was so much slower, like deliberately so, and so it, it didn't have that same energy that I really liked about their earlier matches, and that combined with like progresses production which i think in some ways like really limits um really limits how invested i can get into into um some of these more strike based matches like it it just evened out into something that really never took hold of me the way that it did for you and some of the rest of our friends 
Mm-hmm. Um, out of curiosity, um, what about like some of the other Zach, Zach and Walter matches, like the PWG one that um, I know Meltzer went mm-hmm. five on. Uh, some of the other that stuff. I... Some of the other stuff. That one, the PWG one, and like the Evolve one, like those were never on the same level. I thought. Like yeah. even at the time, like they were just like this one was clearly better than both of those, and I and I didn't even really particularly love this one too much. It was just I don't know. There's just different sorts of things. All right. Well, we can hear your forty-two now. Forty-three. Oh, my, my number forty-three. Yeah. Um, my number forty-three is a matchup that you might have in your list, but I doubt you'll have this match in particular. It's Randy Orton taking on Daniel Bryan on WWE Raw. Not one of their famous matches. This one comes from. Uh, December the 16th, 2013. Uh, yeah, no, n- none of the Orton versus Bryan stuff for me. None of it at all? Okay. No. So this is not one of, um, these guys had a million fucking matches in 2013. But, yeah. <laughs> and this is really, this is really not one of the famous ones. Um, it, instead, it's a, it's a non-title TV match from a week after the Slammies that goes to a DQ. And so on paper, it doesn't sound like a whole lot, but I think it's far and away their best work together. Um, at least in a singles match, and it's 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 probably like the closest thing that we've ever gotten to Orton's incredible matches with Chris Benoit a decade ago, um, or a decade before this, rather. This has all sorts of uh, twists and turns, and all of them are uh, snug and impactful. It's like 25 minutes bell to bell, most of it on TV. I think there's only like one or two uh, commercial breaks or anything, and, and they're not too long. Um, and so what we get is just like tons of struggle back and forth between these two good wrestlers for the first 10 minutes, Orton making the most of his size advantage and Brian refusing to give up, like taking a million little pot shots here and there, finding, finding his openings, finding, finding a way to, to get these like tremendous bursts of energy and, and make the most of them. Um, but then halfway through, um, I don't think it's during the Garvin stomp spot or anything like that, but halfway through, Orton just stomps on Brian's elbow and it completely changes the tone of the match. Um, Brian sells it huge. You know, like in the way that like there's a certain tone of voice that people have when they're selling and this is like way more real than that. Like he, he really he really makes this thing feel um, feel genuine and, and feel impactful in a way that makes you sit up and go, holy shit, wow. Um, and he sells it super well, like doesn't use the doesn't really use the arm at all the rest of the match. Changes up his offense in order to to uh to make up for that like he instead of doing punches he starts doing headbutts at a certain point and i think that's real charming um and orton in turn feels like truly predatory in a way that he he usually doesn't like living up to that gimmick in a way he usually doesn't uh going after brian's arm um being totally invested in a match in a way that we don't often see from him um but it's 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 weird he's like he's both obviously invested but he does this character work in which he sort of comes across as like weary. Like there's a certain tiredness that he has in still facing Brian. Like you can see it on his face. You can see it in the way that he approaches these spots that he's just like, man, I'm still dealing with this motherfucker. Like, didn't I beat him four times already this year? Um, and, and that makes for like a really interesting, uh, a really interesting atmosphere in which he's like vindictive because He's so vindictive because he's still dealing with his Kai all this time later. And eventually Brian makes a killer comeback. Like, honestly, one of his best of the year. And that's really saying something because, like, this guy was on a tear in 2013. 
Um, and right when it looks like he's gonna he's gonna seal the deal, right when it looks like he's gonna beat this guy finally, Orton gives him a blatant low blow right in front of the DQ, or right in front of the referee, and earns a DQ, and that's it. Um, it's not it's not like the sexiest match. It's not the most consequential match, but like it's just good as hell. Like in a um, I would say in a different generation, like this would stand out as like a classic television match. Like it would be one of those classic Clash of the Champions or Saturday Night's Main Event matches. Like one of those things that 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 stands the test of time, and, and people point to as like, oh yeah, this is where this is the turning point. Like this is where this guy was made a star, or like, oh yeah, this was like just the match of the year in a weird year, or or something like that. But for whatever reason, even during wwe's like best year of the decade like this sort of slipped through the cracks i feel and and i wanted to i wanted to put it here um try to i don't know get it out there in the world all right my number 43 is hiroshima versus kudo from ddt audience uh may 31st 2015 okay i definitely did watch this it didn't make my list and i'm sort of remembering it but you're gonna have to take point on this one this is another extremely petty match. For whatever reason, Harashima is really, really hell-bent on beating Kudo here. I'm not particularly sure what Kudo did to piss Harashima off <laughs> that's going around. But, like, it's great mat work and striking that you'd expect from these two guys, um, both yeah. being, like, super proficient at, these, at, at those things. Yeah. But there's a little tick going on with Hiroshima. He is uh there's two very there's two memorable spots. Um Hiroshima uh does his uh stomp on the gut to Kudo and stays there and like he does that sometimes, but there's this like smile that he has while he's standing on Kudo and the ref is telling him to get off. And he's like, you know, digging his feet into Kudo's stomach. Um, and that, like, really, like, sets the tone for, like, the kind of desperation and almost anger that Hiroshima, um, wrestled, th- wrestled this match with. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his contemporaries, Kudo, another guy that's been in DDT for, uh, for as long as Hiroshima has, yeah. and wrestled him with, like, just such contempt. And Hiroshima, even with his other rivals, even with someone like, Ibushi or Shigehiro Irie, like you don't really see that kind of level of resentment uh take a hold of Hiroshima and the usual smiling jovial guy is doing a lot of kind of like dirty shit. Like another yeah. super memorable spot is uh the close the clo- the close fist punch that Hiroshima just decks this guy with in the shit eating grin on this dude's face after he punches after he punches him. And Hiroshima, who I love, I think is an all-time great wrestler. Like I, like I'll fight for him, like any kind of like greatest wrestler ever capacity. Like a guy that I am firmly behind. Like he managed to get me to root for Kudo, and want to see him get his head get kicked the fuck off. And it's a really great performance by him. Uh, to like you know put himself in that position where even though he's so usually so likable, a guy that's gonna finish high. In, in the DDT elections, um, every year, always be always be near the top of the card. You know, the face of the face of DDT, um, historically and and at this point, even still the present. But 
make sure that you want to see him lose vehemently. Mm. And when Kudo finally puts him down, it feels euphoric because you just watch Hiroshima be a complete dick for the uh, for for the other uh, twenty two minutes that you watch this match go on, and this is super deserved uh, reaction, and it stands out for me a lot. Like the it's super violent, mean as you can expect uh, from these two guys who can strike who can strike with the best of them, and that added touch of Hiroshima's uh, heelness throughout the match and the payoff of Kudo uh, winning the KOD Openweight title uh, took took it over the top. All right, my number 42 then moving on is a match that you mentioned earlier on your list. I think in, I think in episode one, uh, it's Takashi Segura defending the GHC Heavyweight Championship against Yoshihiro Takayama at Noah's 10th Anniversary Tour Summer Navigation 2010 Part 1, Day 9? I think that's right. Uh, yeah, that's a weird. That's a weird show name. Yeah, I have it at ninety nine. Really, it was that high or that low? I guess whatever. Um, I guess I get that because th- this is kind of this is a bit dry and a bit slow at times. Um, largely thanks to the sort of pacing required of Takayama at this point in his career, uh, at least in a uh, in a single setting like that tag match that we were talking about earlier was uh, certainly a little more fast-paced and insofar as like they were able to tag in and out and all that um you know it's only this thing's only like 15 minutes long and even then it sort of drags at certain points but these are still two all-time great ass kickers kicking each other's asses and there's something great to be had in that um and in in particular i think it builds to a role a real special spectacle at two points here um uh the first of which is like just a moment of takiyama selling that I think is really great. Um, there, there's he, he controls like the early part of this match, and then eventually Segura comes back on him, and it gets to the point where like about halfway through this thing, like you you get the feeling like okay, like this is Segura's time, like he's the champion coming into this, like he's already been pushed pr- pretty hard at this point, but like it's finally time for him to put down the big man. It, like there's no way like they keep going for a couple minutes after this, and there's some back and forth, but like there's no way he's gonna lose here. Um, and you get that feeling from this moment where Segura uh, German suplexes Takayama into the turnbuckle, like in the top turnbuckle or the middle turnbuckle or something, like jams the dude's neck up against that in a real gross way, um, especially for a guy his size, like as as much weight and as much force as that would as that would um, send his neck into the turnbuckle with. That'd be it's really scary. Um, and Takayama's just like laying on the mat afterwards, looking up at the stars. And he's all bloody, like he he busted himself open hard way early, earlier in the match doing um doing some headbutts, I think. And so he's all bloodied and his his face is all swollen. He's got this um he's got this mouth guard in, so you can't see his teeth. And so when he's got his mouth open and he's just sucking wind, it's just this kind of it's this big black maw. You know what I mean? It's real inhuman. Um and he's staring up at the referee who's 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 standing over top of him from behind. And the camera zooms in on him in this moment. And I can't help but think that he looks like a beached whale. And I don't mean to say that to disparage him. Like, I, I, I truly, I mean that in the best way possible. Insofar as, like, even at his age, even at this point in his career, Takayama is a beast unlike any other in Japanese wrestling. Like, he is truly without peer as far as, like, native Japanese wrestlers are concerned. Um, and so, I, I think, I call him a beached whale insofar as, like, He's a mythic creature 
one sailors used to tell stories about, you know, like these fantastical outlandish horrified stories about, and he's been wrested from his environment by some force of nature, by, by an act of God and left here to die on this beach. And it's only in this state, it's only in this moment rested from his environment that we can really get a good look at him and really understand his power and his wonder. Um, and so like when I call him a beach dweller, like I don't, I really don't mean to like make fun of the guy in any way. Like it's, it's really just to, just to emphasize like how otherworldly he is, even at this point in his career. Um, and the other big moment in this match is right, uh, right before the finish, um, like eventually Segura's built up all this momentum, just laying into the giant with knee after knee after knee and suplex after suplex and, and slam after slam. Um, and at some point, Takayama makes a quick cutoff and suddenly these guys are just trading haymakers, you know, straight rights and lefts back and forth. And Segura comes back on the bigger man with this one-two combo, like hitting four punches in a row that are just like the realest punches you'll ever see in a wrestling ring. And he drops Takayama like a bad habit and puts him down with two Olympic slams after that to win the match. And it's just like such an emphatic finish, like such a, just a bewildering moment. Something that really makes you sit, get up in your seat or like stand up on your feet and go, what the fuck? And it's like, even if this match is a little uneven, like those two unforgettable moments, those two unforgettable images are always going to be seared into my head. And, and it had to be on this list one way or another. Yeah, everything you said there um, describes exactly how I feel about it. Uh, the pace, like, if this was a little bit more high energy, like, yeah. may, like consistently throughout, maybe I would have liked it more. But I think the kind of, like, slow, like, the slowness that it did have at some points, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, also kind of, like, one with, with, like, you know, what Takayama is. Takayama is a big, sure. like, monster that's inevitable. Like, yeah. if you go through, like, any of Takayama's 2000 stuff, or even the stuff in the 2010s that we did get afterward, like, like he's kind of like, he's kind of like Michael Myers. It's like, like, he's inevitable. Like, <laughs> the shit is like, sure. he's, like, he's gonna get you. At his pace, like, no matter yeah. what you do, like, Takayama is gonna make his way across the ring. And when he grabs you and starts mm. hitting you with knees in your gut, there's not much you can do to stop that. Mm. Um... So I guess, well, I guess from that perspective, I can appreciate the pace that it kept. But I love this one of the most fun, violent matches that you'll that you'll find in truly. Uh, Takayama, man, like I, the more I watch him, and I already love the yeah. guy. Like the more I watch him, like the more I just think of him. Like, whew, he's gonna be really high for me when I do GWE. Like he's gonna be really fucking high for me. Absolutely, all time great wrestler. Um. My number 42 is Brock Lesnar versus Daniel Bryan from WWE Survivor Series 2018. Good stuff, but didn't come anywhere near this list. As like the time, like a couple of years removed from this, I start to really appreciate like what this is. Like this is Daniel Bryan versus Brock Lesnar. Like with this being like a great match and like I loved, um, how Brian walks the line here of being significantly smaller than Brock. Um, but this is a fresh heel turn and a really aggressive version of Daniel Bryan. So when he gets control and like baits Brock in, the way he goes at Brock is super mean and gross at points. Um, and for all the in-ring merit that it has, this being two of the two best wrestlers, like two of the best wrestlers of all time, this is like 
it's still like a kind of dream match that still like had that kind of has that kind of feel to me like going back and watching this again and seeing oh yeah up next is brock lesnar versus daniel bryan it was like (laughs) holy fuck like this like this is actually happening like absolutely to appreciate that like brock lesnar versus daniel bryan is a real thing that really happened and not just that was as great as it was like that's 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 significant to me that still matters to me a lot like even if it's however many years too late even if it's three like three years and some change too late like yeah it still is remarkable to think that we actually got brock versus daniel bryan no matter how much they ran away from it no matter how much they tried to fight it we eventually got it and even though brian's a heel and like the alignment is off and shit like that like we still got brock lesnar versus daniel bryan and guess what it kicked ass. It was work super smart. Brock sells his ass off like he like he does you like he does like he uh like he like he can, you know, like no other big man can really. Daniel Bryan is super cunning and calculated and like I said, walks a fine line between sympathetic um and being a heel that you want to see get his ass kicked. When Bryan gets in control, he somehow like comes across as even like intimidating facing a guy like Daniel like facing a guy like Brock Lesnar. Like yeah. There's even this like soup like there's again like this relatively like unathletic like undefined version of Brian that we got in WWE. He comes across as menacing when he gets control of Brock in a way mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't ever look that way. Even um in better matches that Brock may have had, no one feels that way facing Brock. And um, you see Brian lose here, but then walk back with this smile on his face even though he just got mauled by Lesnar, like really, um, really stuck with me as I, as I was making this list. And there's plenty of stuff that I could have had higher if I really wanted to talk myself into it. But like Brian's performance and just the emotional and just like significance and just the coolness of getting to witness right. this, um, was able to overcome that and, uh, get here at 42. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, my number 41 is a match I doubt you really have on your list. It's another one from Beyond Wrestling, your friends and mine. Uh, it's David Starr taking on Orange Cassidy in a number one contenders match at Beyond Wrestling's Tournament for Tomorrow 2018. No, but I am the worst, and honestly, I didn't even think about this, and I should have. Really? Damn. Yeah, like, I, I, I guess, like, maybe Beyond, like, I just, like, I didn't think I didn't really think about it outside of like a couple of matches that I considered, but I for sure, sure I for sure could have considered this. Except this could have had a spot. Yeah, this was. Um, uh, I talked about it in our last episode with uh, I think it was Tanahashi versus Ishii. Uh, this idea that I'm going to label a lot of these matches as momentous, um, and this is this is another one of those momentous matches. Maybe even uh, more so than the rest of them, insofar as uh, Orange Cassidy continues to be a big star and this is like unequivocally his star making match like this is where it all kicks off for him um and this features like all the usual oc stuff like all those usual spots but um they feel different here and they're used differently here because like this is either where they originate like this is where they were invented or this is where they really took off and and entered um the public consciousness and so there's a certain there's a certain like bewildering nature to this match because like none of this none of this stuff is commonplace yet um and they don't have all the beats down yet like these wrestlers like oc himself doesn't even really know 
fully what he wants his character to be just yet. Um, and the crowd's really taken aback by it, but before long, they get 110% behind this guy, especially after he gets busted up, after his, um, I think his nose gets busted up a little bit. Um, and this is like, even, like compared to the to the typical Orange Cassidy match today, this is like way more of a normal match. Like there's way less shtick um, than what we see today on, on TV. Um, there's way more like back and forth between these two guys. Uh, way more like just normal wrestling. Um, and I think Star in particular, this is the highest ranked Star, David Star match on this list. I think Star in particular is better than a lot of OC opponents um, for not totally getting tied up in the shtick, but still being more than willing to stooge around when he needs to. Um, and and I think it really it stands out here in a way because like the ways in which he stooges around isn't directly tied to the shtick that has since then become commonplace in all these matches. Um, like most of the time stars really petty and vindictive ripping into the guy who's like at this level at, at this point in time, like he's definitely not on his level at all in this gimmick. Um, and he's good at turning, turning Cassidy's shtick back on him. Like he, uh, um, uh, at one point, like Cassidy, like he starts doing his like spur of the moment, um, leg work that he that, that becomes like a big theme uh during this title reign during this this eventual IWTV title reign um but star is able to like reverse his spur of the moment leg work um like he's got an ankle lock on star i believe and and star is able to like reverse into a european clutch pin in a way that really feels big and and really like turns everything against him and i don't know this match has like even compared to a lot of other orange cassidy matches that i like a whole lot this features like some of the best near falls of any of those matches and some of the best near falls in recent memory, as far as like any match in the 2010s is concerned. Um, because the, the, the crowd is like the crowd is bought into OC, but they don't know him to be a big deal yet. So when, so when it feels like he's about to lose, they're totally convinced of it. Like they, they think like, okay, yeah, that's it. Diva star is going to face, going to face, um, what Tracy Williams for the, the IWTV title. Like he's the bigger name. Like he's, he's a more established star. He's, he's not so much of a comedy gimmick. Like it's obvious he's going to win. Um, and so every time they get to this near fall where orange Cassidy kicks out and the match keeps going, you see people go from being like totally convinced that it's over to then believing 110% in this guy and going nuts for him as he makes this comeback and eventually wins the match out of nowhere, essentially. And it's, it's such a wonderful thing because, like, you don't see that sort of, like, totally earnest crowd reaction or, like, a reaction from a crowd that has no idea where a match is going. That, like, a, a reaction from a crowd that, like, doesn't know all the, the typical beats of a wrestling match or uh, a wrestling match as it as it concerns this specific character and his, his specific gimmick. Um, and it's... Yeah, like this stood out in a huge way then, and like even with time, I think it it feels even better. Yeah, I completely agree with everything that you said there. And um, one of the ma- one of the only matches that you said so far, and if I had to go back, I would have given a closer eye to considering because everything that you said is totally how I feel about this match. And um, seeing where OC then took this as a uh, you know, becoming becoming a guy that I feel like AEW does have the have the luxury of like you know, you know flipping flipping a switch on, and having him feel like a credible like you know totally. new top star at any yeah. point in time. Like this really is a starting point of that. The starting point of that. Um, 
my number, uh, where are we at here? My number 41, 41. is a match you said earlier. It is Trevor Lee versus Roy Wilkins from CWF Ooh. and the Venera 2016. Yeah, and I had this up in the 80s somewhere. Upon rewatch here, man, like you never really want to rewatch a fucking 105 <laughs> minute match. Yeah, I really, I, I put this one off for a long time. Yeah, like you, like it's so daunting, right? But yeah, it's a lot. You know the way I felt about it in 2016. I was feeling like you know it was one of like the best feats I've ever seen. I've ever seen in wrestling. I still feel that. I still yep. feel that exact same way. This match yep. is still as like ludicrously impressive in regards to like yep. layout, timing, the axe, how it was stretched out, how Trevor Lee fills the time. Uh, we talked about it before, um, and that's been like a criticism of this match from other people that like Roy Wilkins, like you know. Is like you know so much lesser than Trevor Lee here and doesn't really do right. much uh, in regard to elevating this match. And like I get it, at the same time I don't because I feel like Roy like Roy's like he's like he's never really been better than Trevor. Like when you sure. like, even when you go back to like past stuff between Trevor and uh, Roy Wilkins, like Trevor has always been so much better than Roy. And yeah. to see Roy in a situation where Trevor just goes like hits this like superhuman mode, and mm-hmm. nothing Roy does, whether there's interference, doing a band move, uh, constant ref bumps, can get can uh can take away from Trevor deciding this is my night with my career on the line. I am not losing this match, and uh, everything Trevor does just ages beautifully. His hot tag, his selling, mm-hmm. uh. A lot of his early uh, control work on Roy on Roy, the mat work here is yeah. really good. I still really enjoy that portion of it. Um, even the uh, the big and the big interference spot where the all where the all stars are all coming in and beating up on uh, on on uh, on Trevor, and then the rest of the locker room clears out, and uh, you get all these moments that tie that like the interwove and other CWF stories that they. Yeah. Uh, that they were telling at the time, and some, and some that would you know come to a head during Trevor's reign later on. Later on, um, yeah, it's so fantastically laid out. I, th- I think an all time of a performance by Trevor, and um, yeah, one of the boat like you know same thing with uh your gauntlet and SCI and SCI four way. One of the most well booked and laid out matches, um, absolutely of the decade. And like I think it's even I think it's all that more impressive that they really carefully thought of how are we going to do this match over the course of 105 minutes and Mm. like every beat every step everything they took like came to like came to a head like perfectly and trevor sealed and trevor seals sealed it off um i believe you i'm using coach gemini's move um to put to put away roy right in front of him and cwf like at their best nailed like all the little aspects that like you could enjoy about pro wrestling and it might go long might go 105 minutes might go 50 might go 40 like but i I promise you it was all worth it and like i would uh you know i would love to be able like you know people talk about if i get to got got to experience tasting this food again or hearing this album for the first time Mm -hmm. again like i would love to experience cwf for the first time again absolutely um to compare this to like a recent bad match, 
probably the worst match so far of the year. Um, it takes seeing like a remarkably bad long match like that Jordan Oliver, Tony Deppin double Iron Man to really put into perspective like how special and how like well realized this thing it, is. It's only twenty five minutes off. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's it, like it might as well not even be the same fucking universe. It's so much better. Um, and granted, they have a lot of things. There's a lot of things that make this match great that aren't that don't have to do with like what these guys are doing in the ring. Like for example, they have great commentary. They have the benefit of great commentary. Like Cecil uh, Cecil Scott and and Brad Stutz are really incredible at providing the backstory and alluding to um, the history of wrestling in this area and, and, and tying it into what we're seeing. And they never lose energy. They never get distracted. They never get snippy with one another. They stick with the match the whole way through and, and really help you along in this thing. Um, and they have a great crowd too. Like it's amazing that they don't lose these people. Like these people stay invested the whole time through. They keep their energy up the whole time through. And like that's something that's that's something that makes this thing special in a way that like so many other super long matches like really just never have the benefit from. But the 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 big thing that really makes this stand out is that these guys have a better grasp of like rising and falling action mm. than most any match I've ever seen. Especially at this length, like yeah, the, 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 this this very much plays out like classic, like you no, know, like classic thematical like play, like plays yeah. in like art, like it really does like play out like it has chapters. Yeah, like so, so often in big matches, you see the people in the ring unable to keep up their own energy throughout an endless series of big spots, and the crowd likewise in reacting to this stuff over and over again is spent after a certain point. Um, and even if they come alive later for a big moment, like you still get spots where it's like, Ooh, the crowd really didn't react to that the way that they probably should have. Like they should have popped there and they didn't because like, they're just too fucking exhausted. But with this match, there's enough downtime, which itself is kept interesting through like through this interference, through this good commentary and so on with this match. There's enough downtime that like everyone can collectively catch their breath and get ready to lose it for the next big moment. And these guys in the ring who were, like super well conditioned to begin with are able to like give it their all with every big spot. And like, I don't know. You just, you don't see that in other matches in, in this one, you see it in this one and it's, it's what makes it special. Yeah. And, and, and in those, and in those ball part two, like, you know, like it's like, it's like the CWF buzz and like hype that did come, like really was like, come like an integral part of like the kind of like community that we were in at that point. Uh-huh, and like, absolutely. And you know, like I guess like in no small part, like do I view this match as like, you know, like almost like reminiscent of like I guess like not a better time, but it's like a good time. Like, you know, like the beginning of like you know, I guess the beginnings of uh wrestling with of wrestling with words and like, you know, yeah. I guess like all of us like really like being excited to like yeah. I guess like sort of like being like being on the ground floor on something that like, you know, that eventually start catching more eyes and you know did like wound up like doing better business than it ever did before. Like, you know, with, yeah. you know, with, you know, with, with this, with this Trevor rain and like, I don't know, like that's not lost on me when, uh, when talking about this match, I'm like, what this match led to in terms of just like, you know, like more like a, like a, like a community building aspect. All right. So that was your 41, right? Yeah. All right. My number 40 is a match that you mentioned earlier on your list. 
It's another one of those momentous matches. It's Chris Hero taking on Timothy Thatcher at WWN Live Super Show Mercury Rising 2015. Yeah, and I had this at 54. Okay. Um, so not too far. Like that's I think that's like maybe the shortest period between two of our matches. Um, so yeah, like I said, this is this is one of those big momentous matches. Uh, turned Tim Thatcher into a household name on the Indies basically overnight. Um, like this was I had seen him before at this point, but like this was this was going from like oh this is a guy who I've seen on like a Beyond Wrestling show that wasn't taped in front of fans to oh my god this guy is getting reactions that I could not dream of. You know, um, it's been five years, if not more, since anyone on the Indies had captured everyone's imagination the way that Thatcher does here. Like not since, not since our boy Akira Tozawa in 2010, if not earlier, you know, um, and hilariously with, with probably the hottest crowd indie wrestling has seen in years outside of like Reseda, California. Dude, right? (laughs) Yeah. Hilariously. These guys proceed to have a slow, technically based match, like something that you would never expect, given given this crowd reaction. Like, you know, you think about somebody like Chris Hero, somebody who's got his got his ear to the ground at all times. You think maybe he would be like, "Hey, let's like speed this up a little bit. Let's see if we can we can like put some more into this match. Like, let's 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 make it more exciting to 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 feed off of this crowd." No. They just, they do what they were going to do, and they have, like, a slow, technically-based, mat-based match, and somehow it works. Like, probably, probably thanks to these local fans, or, like, how how well-built this match was, or, like, how, how well they built up to this match in, in, in the months before it in Evolve. Um, but somehow, yeah, like, somehow these guys take a white-hot crowd and slow things down and set them to a simmer for like 20, 30 minutes and stoke them over time to the point that they're white hot again for a flash submission finish out of nowhere. And it's such an impressive thing. Like it's, it's, it's in some ways, I think this was the correct way to approach this match because like it, it, you know, Tim Thatcher is not the kind of guy who's going to be having your bombastic kick out heavy 25 minute main event and trying to force him into that, I think would have killed him dead. And so, like, they make what, in hindsight, feels like such a bewildering move, but in making it so slow, in making it so methodical, this feels as big as possible, and it makes him as big as possible, and made him, like, the cin- the central figure of, like, one of the hot-button promotions in the middle of the decade, and, and made him into a guy who today is, like, a big star in NXT. Um, it's maybe the best example of crowd control. That you can point that, yeah. that you can point to this decade because, like you said, I I recently just watched this what like two or three days ago um, yeah. in preparation for this, and I was it was jarring seeing how lively this crowd was. Uh-huh. I, I turned this on I'm like, oh holy shit! Like Thatcher was really fucking over on this show, <laughs> like. And again, like not to like rehash like all the same ta- all the same talking points. <laughs> I know, like, right? Yeah, no, like it's not the rehashing, but like it's so like. God damn, this guy this is the guy that kills crowds? We should, like yeah. we're sure about this, even though there's like all this evidence that points to like that literally not being the case. Yeah. Uh, but to the match itself. People just over the moon about it. Yes. Like, <laughs> they are they seem like they're here to see Timothy Thatcher. Absolutely. Um But they started they, like the opening the opening mat work and the feel and feeling out process is great and like the thing about this and like you know what makes Hero uh always so fun to watch and so smart is that while hero has this extensive Matt wrestling background as well, like 
Hero makes it clear, um, in the story and in the, in the match makes it clear about Timothy Thatcher having that having the advantage in that regard. So yeah. immediately, you know, after this after this exchange, like the big spot is Hero coming in and just kicking this shit out this dude. Like that changes the entire like complexion of this match and like the direction it takes. And now we get. Timothy Thatcher putting on one of his best selling performances of the decade too. Like, yep. Thatcher is a guy that I've always regarded as one of the best sellers of all time. And yeah. here is like a shining example of that. Maybe even more so than the Walter match that I had on my list. This is an amazing selling of this beatdown. Uh Hero is consistent. Hero's mean. Hero is uh like really blending the strikes with uh, using his weight and size to um just over just overpower uh mm. overpower Thatcher in a spot look a spot that could look so goofy if anyone else did it as Timothy Thatcher keeps running in to Hero's boots in the corner and the fate as he like gets kicked away and then turns and makes the and, and makes these scowls and then runs uh-huh. right back in to have the same thing happen to him and it happens like four times and then yeah. like the fifth time he catches his leg and then when he finally like you know counters it like you love that shit I love it it like really you know feels it feels like this guy won't be denied on this moment this is his moment this is his his stage and this is what they've been building building to hero versus Thatcher hero's been running through the rest of the grapple fuck guys like but Thatcher no and it's a great performance a super significant match and like you said in no small part like you know leads to Thatcher you know being the guy that eventually um dethrones uh Drew Galloway and winds up and winds up unifying the belts um Thatcher is incredible here Chris Hero uh plays his role perfectly and as I was sitting there thinking of like what hero Thatcher matches like you know to include to you know to include like I remember the Bola match being really good having like a spectacular mm-hmm. finish right and then um the pro the progress one and like the uh the little cheap shot that hero t- the hero takes the yeah. uh, you know that 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 changes the match and um even the title match that I think gets lost during a Thatcher's title reign that thing that thing is great and this was the one that stood out the most um. Not just for significant, not just for its like significance um, in Thatcher's career and like the turn of all would then take, but just a fantastic selling performance and like something mm-hmm. that goes from like being something that could be like this like technical wrestling masterclass to like good old fashioned heel versus babyface and babyface overcomes and has this big moment like you right. know I think I think I think we like like to use like this like the same word over and over again like we have like repeating themes like as we go through these shows and like the term momentous like really does come to this like Thatcher really creates an environment and the crowd is so into him that like when he finally when he finally puts Hero away it feels like a really big deal and I mentioned the mm-hmm. uh, crowd control aspect and yeah one of the best matches of, matches of the decade my number 40 is a match you mentioned earlier is Kyrie Hojo versus Michael Satomura from Stardom Galaxy Stars June 14th, 2015. And I had that at, uh, I think, 45. Or, uh, no, no. Actually, let me see. 40... Man, where was this? 50-something? Fuck it. Uh, 52. Okay. Man, when I first saw this, this, like, blew me away in a way that... Absolutely. 
Yeah. Like, it was, again, like, this this twenty this year of 2015, it was, like, a year of, like, getting introduced to a lot of people for the first time or, like, coming to see people in a different light in the first time. And this was absolutely one of those matches. Um, We've mentioned, like, momentous moments. And, like, sometimes, like, the opposite, like, can, re- can really can really hit as well. Just like moments of resi- just like moments of resilience that even if it doesn't lead to a win, like stuff that right. really sticks with you. And Kyrie Hojo in this Michael Sadamora series, and especially in this middle match here, uh between them. Uh this Oh, one. do you consider the, the Kobashi show one the first one? Uh yeah, I, I consider that the first one. I just think that it's, it's so separate, really. Uh, yeah, but I I think they're so close in proximity that I guess like I still like get I guess that's right. that. Um yeah, yeah. But Kyrie and her just having this having this moment of uh, becoming champion and running into this fucking buzzsaw yeah. that is Michael Sadamore, this like super decorated, legendary, all time all time great worker, uh, is a daunting task to put in front of Kyrie compared to like. Everything else that she had like stood stood in front of her to this point, and I mean, we we talked about like, we talk about momentous moments and everyone you know feeling like something is a big deal and this and that. And this match is a moment of survival, like it's yeah. pure guttural survival. And uh, Michael is rabid here, like you know, as this goes on and it becomes clear that Kyrie is completely outgunned. Facing mm-hmm. facing Michael, uh, you almost get the sense of inevitability. Like, okay, Michael's gonna put this away, and Kyrie turns this into one of the best babyface performances I've ever performances I've ever seen. Um, yeah. and it's a shame that like she didn't really get to showcase this as much. And like, obviously, yeah, like she's had the concussion issues and um, sure. other things, but like Kyrie at her best. Just is one of the most likable and lovable baby faces that I think wrestling has ever seen. So charming, like the yeah. the the image from this match that always stands out to me is um when she does that spot where she like sort of like walks real stiff armed away from the corner and comes back on somebody and does an elbow. Mm-hmm. And it, it and seeing her do that in this match was just like it just it brought me so much joy. I like I like like I love Kyrie so much and to see her just fight and like fight for her life really uh-huh. facing facing Maiko it's like a thing that I hadn't seen um I think I think I, I tried I tried to go through the trilogy at um at one at one point I think in like 2018 or whatever sure. and I wasn't gonna get a chance didn't get a chance to finish it so like I really hadn't seen this since 2015 but I just had this like burned image in my head hmm. Of like how fucking brutal this match was on Kyrie and like the control and kicks and um just level of brutality that Micah uh inflicted upon her. And I watch it and I still felt the exact same way. And I feel like, you know, that's like the most rewarding part of uh doing these shows and revisiting this stuff is that I felt the exact same way I felt, you know, watching this match for the first time in twenty fifteen. And I wish I could have it higher. Um, mm. You know, that being said, like, I'm still saying there's like a top 40 match in the last 10 years. <laughs> but like, sure, sure, totally. <laughs> like, 
But I, lo- I love this. I absolutely adore this. Uh, one of the best performances of the, of the decade by any wrestler. Michael Satomura, uh I'm not sure. I don't think it's my favorite performance from her of the decade, but it's damn mm-hmm. close. And uh, yeah, the second best stardom match ever. Yeah, like a real, real brutal thing. Um, and real just surprising too, because this was like, this was the first time I'd ever seen Kyrie. Um, and just like, seeing her do one of those elbow drops for the first time was just <laughs> truly breathtaking to just be like what the fuck to to like yeah. <laughs> to just like reinvent a move that i'd seen a million times before and that i thought i knew inside and out to see her do it in such a way that was just like holy cow like what the fuck do i know um and this was also this is an interesting match because like this was um this was like the first new Sadamora match I'd seen in a while. Like at this at this point in time, I I was a big fan of hers. Just like she was one of my favorite women's wrestlers ever. Wasn't quite one of my favorite wrestlers ever. Period. The way that she is today, um, but I was a big fan of hers at the time. But I hadn't seen her. I, I hadn't seen like a new match from her since like maybe 2012 or so. Just because like I was busy with life and and I wasn't super clued into the Joshi scene. And so this comes out of nowhere, and I'm like, oh yeah, this woman I love facing somebody who's like you know the hot new champion in this promotion i should watch it and it was just like wow like just totally blew me away on on both ends from both of these women um to see someone who who i liked a whole lot like totally come into her own as this ass-kicking veteran and to get her to get me to to get watch her make me fall head over heels for this like young baby face champion that that totally swept me away it was it was great stuff yeah and um Kyrie's reign, like, I think, like, kind of gets, like, swept under the rug, obviously, because, like, I think, like, the Maiko stuff, like, then, um, you know, re- reaches, like, reaches insane heights, and then there's, the, like, they, that transitions into EO and her reign. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, looking back at it, it's like, a, it's a, it like, like, her versus EO, um, for the, for the vacant title, then she faces Mayu, and then you have the two Michael Satomura matches, and then there's a Takumi Aroha match, like, in, in, in this too. Like, Kyrie's reign was really fun. But like immediately after facing um you know two of her uh uh contemporaries, she runs into Maiko when it's a completely different story. All right, next up at thirty nine is a match that I hope you have in your list. Uh, it's uh, I was gonna say it's my highest ranked lucha match, but that's super not right. Uh, it's a lucha de apuestas match between Atlantis and Ultimo Guerrero at the CMLL eighty first anniversary show. We will talk about that on the next episode. Okay. Um, my number 39 is a match you mentioned earlier. It is, uh, Kenny Lupus versus, uh, Trauma Primero from IWRG, Ooh. September 4th, 2016. Another Apoistus match. How fun. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned at the time when we did this, that like, you weren't particularly sure, like how a match like this would age. Um, did I, did I say that in 2016? I believe, I believe so. Yeah. Weird. I'm not sure if it was, not sure if it was in private or on the show but you did like express some kind of like some kind of concerns about that um and i gotta say that while i still have it this high like all of those concerns like did feel like they were met like during this process like yeah you know i wasn't as enthralled by it as i would be by like other lucha de apuestas matches that will appear on my list now it is still super visceral and violent and just off of that merit alone is still uh just like through sheer will um gets on this list but um 
I think a lot of that mo- like that, emo- that like a lot of that emotional uh subtext like still like you know, like I guess like didn't really didn't really uh resonate the same way this go around. That being said, like it's still um enthrall still enthralling to watch this. Like, you know, uh to look at the amount the the, the amount of blood, the mask ripping um, and even the pageantry, like, you know, but this being IWRG yeah. still, like, there's a level of pageantry here in uh, uh, theatrics that still gets played up, obviously, with the stretcher job and everything. Um, and, like, that can be viewed as kind of hokey and doesn't really add anything to the match. But I feel like that being such a rarity um, in Mexico and that, that, that kind of, uh, those kind of, uh, I guess, quote-unquote crutches not being used very often in, in matches like this, like, sure. makes it unique. And doesn't make it feel gimmicky or hokey, and um, I hope that I hope that I would have it higher, truthfully. And I tried my best to like see what I could justify, uh, justify it being above. But at the end of the day, I couldn't really get to a point where um, I could push this match any higher. But it's still, it's one the of the top best forty match of the decade. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like still one of the it's like still one of the best matches of the decade. Obviously, still one of the best yeah. uh, Lucha de Apuestas matches. Uh, of the of the of the decade as well, and like even still, I still kind of find myself a little uh, disappointed I couldn't get higher. Yeah, like I, I share some of your um your concerns and your qualifications about this thing that like it's a little slow, it's a little dry at points. Like I think it it drags on with the third fall a little longer than it needs to, but like eventually it it reaches that level of like earned melodrama that I really want out of an Apoistis match, and and this one like gives it to me in spades like like i the only one that i have higher on this on this list is is like atlantis ug you know something that was like widely considered like one of the best lucha matches of the decade um and so yeah like this whole thing with like the build around the martinete and 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 in trauma uno like getting this neck brace and and um and beating uh connie's lupus out of nowhere with his dad's move that lupus had made him tap out to earlier in the match like you have like all these wonderful moments that they build to and and like they really feel earned in a way they really feel earned in their drama in a way that so many other matches aren't and it's yeah it's it's just one of the best one of the best matches of the decade my number 38 is a match i think you said you already had on your list i don't remember at this point it's a katsuyori shibata facing tomohiro ishii in the 2013 g1 climax uh, where did I have that at? I had it at 63. Okay, so this is another one of those momentous matches, once again. Um, and truly, like, one of the matches on this list that I feel changed the whole landscape of pro wrestling during this decade. Um, cemented Ishii as, like, a guy on the come-up, as opposed to someone who just got, like, a lucky win over Tanahashi. You know, something something that easily could have just been swept under the rug in in the grand scheme of things like this was the one that was just like, no, this guy is here to stay. And he's a, he's a new big name on the scene. Um, and this was like when, when I was one of five people I knew who was watching new Japan, this was the match that I sent to people. This was the match that I was just like, I went to all my friends and I was like, you got to see this. Like you got it. You got to start watching this new Japan shit. Like this is, this is such a singular match. Like this is such an exciting one of a kind thing that you just, you got to get on this train. Um, and it's like, it's sort of frustrating in some ways. In so far as, as it's like the genesis of a lot of bad tropes 
but truly I think they do it better here. They do all that stuff better here than in any other match that came after this. Um, part of that is, is it's just the fact that it goes by really quick. Like this is a fast match. It's only 12 minutes long. Um, and, and, and that, that brevity really helps a lot to smooth over some of those bumps. Um, and a lot of, a lot of those tropes that we came to hate later on or that I came to hate at the very least later on feel more like natural and organic here. Like there's, um, when they start doing the strike exchange, when they start doing this, like your turn, my turn thing, um, where they drop down to to a knee and and let the other guy like take a swing at them, like it it comes apart. It comes apart in a real natural way, I think. Where like, um, like Shibata like just drops to a knee, selling pain after a move, or to just like give to give Ishii a better shot, and then Ishii's just like, oh, it's gonna be like that. You want to do that? And he and he drops down to a knee afterwards too, and it's just like, okay, big man, like you you think I need to. Like, he takes it like a personal affront. Like, oh, you think I need a better shot at you just because you're taller? Well, I'm going to do the same thing to you. And it's like, I don't know, it's just like a small difference like that in the tone of this thing that makes it so much more exciting. And it makes it um, it makes it hold up better over time than so many of the, so many of the other matches that followed in this footsteps. Um, and it, it helps a whole lot that this was also like when Ishii was still very much an underdog. And like that underdog gimmick felt exciting. Like it it felt like the sky was the limit for him as opposed to something like 2016, 2017, 2018, in which you are reminded again and again that there is very much a limit on what he can do. Um, And, you know, like I've fallen, I was like such a big New Japan fan at this point and I've fallen off on so many other matches from this era. But like this one, when I rewatch it, like when I rewatched it to, to get it on this list, like it still took my breath away. Yeah, like, despite, like, the evolutions uh, and bad parodies that this, like, match may have influenced, like, the, ori- the original is untouchable. Like, this, like, this match and uh, everything that everything that they accomplish here um, really does set both guys on a path where, like, you know, those being the alternatives, like, oh, you don't like uh, Okada that much? Well, Here's this. You don't like Naito that much. Totally. You don't like Nakamura that much or Tanahashi. Well, here are these guys. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's entirely like the kind of like thing they represented. Like, they almost had like their own like little like subculture within the promotion. <laughs> that like, yeah. you know, that was like that was like that was really interesting. And everything you say, like the um, the meanness and the stiffness and the striking and all that speaks for itself. But like, like if you're looking for pure dudes rock hard-headed bullshit <laughs> like this is exact this is exactly that like this is like so perfect for it. and it doesn't get to the point um of possibly being hokey or doing too much that you could say like yeah. they're like a new beginning match in 2016 uh yeah uh might might have gotten to um and for and for that like legendary match like super influential match like super uh pivotal match and uh, definitely something that's worthy of uh, being so high on your list. Uh, my number 38 is Kazuchika Okada versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from New Japan for Wrestling, Wrestle Kingdom 10. Okay, this one is not on my list. Maybe the most, maybe the Tanahashi versus Okada match I've always, like, I've been conflicted on the most, really. Um, really? Yeah, even, even at the time, I was, like, kind of conflicted on it, right? So... The tombstone spot. Get out of the way. 
really fucking bad and like does kind of like detract from the match like in a way that's like super noticeable um like and you can't really you can't really cover up like say like with okada you know uh having a hard time getting over to do his wacky submission on tanahashi and then yeah. like he like then he like looks up then the camera like goes to him having this like this like uh just like this shit eating smirk on his face like you know like yeah. that like that right there saves it from like being a thing that looks super clunky and like takes away from the match to like a really endearing moment for Okada and like sure. this doesn't have like you know any of that same charm so then it just looks like you know a foible that like you know throws off a match from being great but mm. other than that I feel like there were like some like also some other like uh pacing stuff that I remember that I remember, that I remember not liking as much and then I went back to it and the pacing stuff didn't really bother me as much still felt still felt like it followed the typical template and i guess like the bigger picture started to, started to matter me matter to me more like yeah. the bigger picture is like this is okada finally being better than tanahashi like not just physically better but mentally better too the mental resilience that he didn't have last year when he uh when tanahashi kicked out of the rainmaker and okada uh, didn't know what to do, and the leaves Okada crying, uh, going to the back. Like, this is a mental resilience that Okada didn't have, and um, to see that come to a head as like the same things happen. Uh, Tanahashi kicks out of a rainmaker. Uh, Okada kicks out of a high five, high five flow. They exchange moves. Like all of the all of this happens, but Okada never loses focus, and obviously, like the thing that like. You know they continue. They, you know that thing got that got t- taken by uh, people who have uh, less of a notch for a subtlety in storytelling, like Will Ospreay, and like um, it became a continuous thing in Okada matches at a point where you can say that it lost uh, lost meaning. But like yeah. the wrist clutch, holding onto the wrist as Tanahashi is slapping him, and they both fall to the ground, like. It's not just like a goofy thing to sit there and zoom in on it. Like even though I guess like the production like does make like does make it like a uh, a little bit more like more of a thing to make fun of, even though yeah. like they're trying to like highlight it, you know, the way that they, the way that it should be. Like it's a moment of resilience that I won't be den- I won't be denied this time. I won't let you beat me this time. I can't let it happen. I'm not in my own head. I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna do this. Like. I'm not going to let you beat me because I have to beat you. You can't beat me for a third time here. You can't beat me for a third time on this show. It just can't happen. And um I think with all, I think with that being said and like the fact that this still like I guess like for this point in time this is like uh the conclusion to their um, to their uh story from 2012 to 2013 from 20 to 2016. Um, I could it, it w- I wouldn't feel right not having it. Um, sure, it's still a great match and includes like some like really potent and uh seminal st- and, and, and seminal storytelling, and um, yeah, I think that finally getting the moment, you know, on the third try that Okada has beaten Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom, he is now the guy for real this time. I think like really does uh, uh really does still resonate with me um enough to look past like whatever flaws may exist. Sure, sure. 
Uh, so moving on, my number 37 is a match that you had on your list a little bit higher than this. It's CM Punk versus The Undertaker from WWE WrestleMania 29. And I had that at 53. Okay. Um, so despite the fact that this is not a main event, uh, unless you wanted to get into that discourse, which I think is fucking inane, um, despite the fact that this is not a main event, I would describe this as the best WrestleMania main event of the decade. Um, insofar as it's like the best, you know, WrestleMania moment TM match of the decade. Like the, the one that like, that is most befitting of, of that sort of pageantry and drama that you get at WWE's biggest show of the year. Um, and the one that actually I think holds up in spite of all of that. Uh, it's this incredible smoke and mirror show, which is to say it's like, it's a match that understands its limitations and creates an exciting contest in spite of them. Like people, I think get a little, um, get a little dismissive when they use that sort of, that sort of terminology, use that sort of phrase. But like here, I mean it in the best way possible that this is, this is a very effective match. Um, coming out of a great short-lived build with Punk disrespecting the recently uh, recently deceased Paul Bearer. Um, and it's, uh, as we were talking about with, um, uh, I think it was Jordan Devlin versus David Starr the other day, uh, it makes for a grudge match that actually feels heated, that actually feels like these guys are at odds, which is um, sadly kind of a rarity in wrestling, and especially so with these WrestleMania Undertaker matches. And I think it's like, in that way, it's really a credit to Punk that I like this as much as I do, considering how much I dislike Taker's other WrestleMania efforts in the years before this and in the years after this that get like a whole lot more to work with, you know, that get a whole lot more of a build and a whole lot more drama and a whole lot more time, not to mention. Um, but yeah, this, this ends up being a real wild ride of a match. It's a lot, fi- uh, a lot faster paced than a lot of taker matches of this era and of earlier eras to be honest um like punk slaps the guy right out of the gate and eggs him on and really gets under his skin he, yeah, he like, disrupts yeah, like, like punk really pushes him in a way that's like almost like audacious like no like we're yeah. gonna have the best fucking match on this show whether like i gotta drag your ass into doing this like we yeah. are doing this <laughs> like yeah punk like based on his you know based on comments he's made afterwards like it really it really feels like he wrestles this match with a chip on his shoulder and is sort of just like, fuck it, I'm going to make the best of a bad situation. And it makes for an all-time great match. Like, he he really disrespects this guy in a way that, like, nobody ever has. And while Taker, like, slowly is able to take advantage of that, able to, like, to, to use Punk's cockiness against him, uh, Punk is still, like, a really uh, opportunistic wrestler. Like, he's a guy who always has a reversal or a cutoff up his sleeve. There's always There's always a back and forth in this thing. Um, despite the fact that Taker is like so much more experienced and is like twice the guy's size, you know, uh, and there's like this great finishing stretch in this match with, with this famous spot where, um, where Punk's got the Anaconda vice applied and Taker sits up in the way that he does and, and stares him down and has that, <laughs> that wonderful moment that like, you know, in another match I would think was kind of goofy, but here, like, it's still, it's still the coolest shit in the world to me. Um, has one of the best falsies of the decade one of the best false finishes of the decade where um punk lands a gts uh but he, he doesn't really get taker fully with it it's sort of like a glancing blow and taker bounces off the ropes and just hoists him up and does like a 
a, like a snap tombstone pile driver or something and punk gets to kick out of it like it's such a such a wild little spot there and it's like you were saying like it's audacious like it's 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 crazy to think that like cm punk of all people got to get like a, a tombstone pile driver kick out of like it's it's i don't know there's there's so much about this that is like so fun in a way that few other like big stadium wwe matches of this decade were and certainly like few undertaker matches were this is um i remember i remember watching this uh as it was ha- as it was happening and just being like so engaged by punk that even like his other like you know keep in mind like this is cm punk like 2011 through like you know through summer through SummerSlam of uh 2013 punk is on fire in a way that like many wrestlers have like you know not many wrestlers have ever like touched and right. um even more than like even more than money in the bank even more than like other stuff like this is so like like can't miss you can't take your eyes off of punk like from the mo- like from the mm-hmm. build until the moment that he walks out punk ha- punk's on a mission and I feel like you know it's like it's like a super tangible feel that like this guy refuses to be out um outdone here mm-hmm. um and then that leads to, that leads to the uh to, to a great match the best streak match i would say um you know I really like I really like both of the Triple H matches uh, from the previous from the two previous previous WrestleManias. Um, I've liked I like the first Sean match, not as big on the second one, and sure. and the and I actually really really like the Orton Undertaker stuff. But this like head and shoulders is like the best is is the best streak match, and yeah, like you said, like to see someone like CM Punk like get to do all this stuff facing like almost like the embodiment of WWE even more than fucking mm-hmm. John Cena like facing the Undertaker like yeah again it's like different like realities clashing but like you know it made for something like really memorable and like you know I just I miss Punk man I really yeah. miss him <laughs> um, by chance have you ever seen like the other Taker versus Punk matches yeah from like 2009 yeah, yeah. like I was uh, that, that was back when I was watching WWE more regularly um and truth be told those matches going as poorly as they did was kind of what put an end to that mm. really like i like i was I, yeah like i was so i was really invested in in that summer of punk um it's not one of those but you know um i, I was really invested in like that jeff hardy feud he had over the summer um and i like i thought the the finale of it at there at SummerSlam with that tlc match where undertaker shows up at the end and choke slams him like i was super excited for that um and then from there to see them have like the next match was hell in a cell and like they had like a 10 minute hell in a cell that was like the opener of the pay-per-view and it really put a bad taste in my mouth and then from there i think it was like then a follow-up yeah a follow-up that was like a four-way like it was him batista taker and ray or something and it was just like it felt like they didn't they didn't give this matchup a chance at all and it really just put a bad taste in my mouth and i kind of like i, I kind of quit watching wwe regularly for five years I'm tra- five six years i'm trying to remember like why they did that. like why did they do that you know have like because they gotta got remember like Punk versus Hardy and granted, like they're not like you know they weren't main eventing SummerSlam because of Punk, but like Punk versus Hardy was like getting billing over Cena over Cena at that point. Yeah, 
Like, it's real big, yeah. So, like, it's kind of weird that, like, immediately after, like, you know, Jeff gets um, fired over the over the DUI, that, like, they just kind of, like, can punk, like, pretty immediately afterwards. Yeah, like, it makes me think, like, maybe Taker didn't like him or something, or he wasn't, like, he certainly wasn't as established as he would be later on. Like, I don't know what it was. Yeah, just, just like, weird to look back on, but, um... All right, so my number thirty-seven um, is uh, Ray Etchisero versus Charles Lucero from oh, Monterey boy. on August fourth, twenty thirteen. Yeah, uh, this one did not end up making my list. I don't love this. Um, there isn't a ton to say really about this match, right? Because it's just yeah. like you know, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward, but like. It's just some of the best, like, and well-paced Lucha mat work that I've ever seen. Like, um, going back to like even like the like the like the best of the best shit that you could like you'll see you'll that you'll see on DVD VR sets. Like, to me, like it's up there. Like it belong it belongs in like it belongs in those it belongs in like those same conversations. And um, it's just like dazzling, pretty. Like I can't like I can't turn away from it, kind of yeah. kind of work. And like that might not be the best sales pitch, like in, like compared to like everything else that we've talked about. That like you can go like go in like deep like analysis analysis on. But like it's just cool, intricate, super nuanced and advanced understanding and almost like innovation of uh of what of what like I've I've come to understand is like lucha libre mat work in a yeah. in a. I guess like the maestro style. It's like a blend of like the maestro title match style, really. And like I watch it, and I never and I never I, ne- I never get tired of it. Like this is this is something that like you know like everyone has like those kind of like TV shows that like every once in a while they want to re- they want to revisit or even like you know maybe more so like maybe more applicable is like your favorite comedy your favorite comedy stand up that like you like don't ever get sick and tired of uh of sure. watching. Like like I'll always go back to like uh Dave Chappelle killing kill him softly. I never get tired of that stand up special. Uh just randomly I'll throw it on um you know just to have something on on the TV. Um if I th- if I think about it like oh well, I haven't seen that in a while. Let me let me find that and throw it on. And I'll laugh at the same jokes I've heard a bunch of different times. And this is kind of that for me. Like, no matter how many times I see Echisero versus Lucero, I'm always amazed at how beautiful this match is. It's completely stunning. Um, in I guess like I guess like you know a real a real big uh, match for like I guess like the Lucha Indies at this point. Like this is oh, like absolutely yeah, like all, like at this point like you know it like like I guess it's a, a much smaller operation then, but like. This match even placed on like a on like the VOW like match of the year list yeah. that year and like obviously like VOW isn't like you know isn't like this uh uh aren't, aren't like super like you know uh heavy lucha covering uh site like right. the fact that it broke through that much I think uh speaks to how uh this match grabbed a bunch of a bunch of different people it like it shocks me that you like aren't really a fan of this but um. Yeah. You know, I guess like I guess like there really isn't much to it. So like I don't know. 
yeah, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's one of those things where it's like, it's so sparse in a way that you think would appeal to me, but it's, for whatever reason, like, that's, that, that sparseness just kind of doesn't hit. Like, it doesn't feel like any of this builds to any particular thing. Like, I love the big bump, I love that big wild bump that Ichisero takes into the, takes into the, um, the front row of, of seats, and it, like, it, it's a really dramatic thing that amps up the action, but like, everything that leads up to that is just like, dry to me like it, it feels like it doesn't really go anywhere or speak to me in any particular way and it's and it's a really frustrating thing because like this is such a famous match within our circles like within people who watch lucha libre and specifically like the lucha indies um like it's the sort of thing that i should like that i've spent years thinking that i should like and i, and I never really have um did you like any of uh, I guess like the other match they had, or like any of like other any like uh any of like Charles Lucero's like other stuff at the time? Like I, uh, I I've seen older Lucero matches. Like he has um, I want to say he has like a famous match with uh, El Hijo Dos Santo in like two thousand one that I've seen that I've enjoyed. Um, I don't think I've ever seen any other ones from this time other than these two, these two H. Lucero matches. Like neither of which really did a lot for me. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it it it's definitely is one where like it's it's kind of, it's kind of a bummer that you don't like it, but like hey, like yeah. you know, I at least you like you know you're still liking like the Zach Greshams and Drew versus Quack and Quack Gresham. Like there's still that soft spot in your a soft spot in your heart there. Uh, maybe it's not as high energy as you would like, maybe, but eh, sure, I get it. Well, next up at 36 is a real high energy match, uh, despite the fact that it takes place in front of zero fans. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a um, real one of a kind thing. It's John Moxley defending the CZW World Heavyweight Championship in a Falls Count Anywhere match against Drake Younger and Nick Gage on CZW's Southern Violence. I've never seen this match, so tell me about it. So, um, to talk about this thing, I really got to set the stage because, like. So much of, like, why I like this match, it does come down to, like, where it takes place. Um, so this was around the time that CZW realized they wouldn't be running the arena too much longer. But that, like, after about ten years of running the ECW arena, um, being, like, the primary residence there, like, they were going to have to move eventually. And they don't move until, like, another year and a half after this, I think. Um, but this is this is around the time that, like... The, the building starts to, to change under new management repeatedly over the course of a couple of years. And it, and it feels like the writing's on the wall as like each of these new people come in and are just like, Oh, we want to clean this place up. We want to, we want to stop booking so many wrestling shows, or we want to be much more, um, uh, much more selective about what wrestling shows we allow here. And, and, and things very much changed for the arena compared to where they were in the two thousands. Um, and so this coincides with a, um, with a wider expansion that CZW makes into other regions around the United States. Like up until this point, they have basically only ever worked in uh, the, the American Northeast or, or like the really more of the mid Atlantic, more of like, you know, the, the Pennsylvania and uh, New Jersey and Delaware region. And they've taken, you know, they've taken some international bookings. Like they've ran a show in, in Italy and they ran some shows in, uh, in Japan. But you know, beyond that, it was basically just that, that Northeast corridor. Um, and this is around the time they start breaking out, like earlier in the year, they had their first show in Indiana that I attended and sort of worked. 
in quotation marks. Um, and a couple months after this, they have their first show in Massachusetts and they do their first tour, their first of a couple yearly tours of Germany. So this is them very deliberately trying to get out there. Um, and this show is, uh, 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 takes place in, in, um, uh, Lumberton, North Carolina, this tiny little town in, in, in the Southern part of North Carolina. And it draws horribly, uh, cage match claims that there are 52 fans in attendance and i think that's generous i think it's more like 25 or 30 like it's enough that you could this match is free on youtube um it's enough it's few enough fans that you could very much like pause this match and count them uh like it's it wouldn't be that hard um and there's probably a couple reasons for that like um for one this is kind of a bad boring card like this is basically the only match of any note on this card like there's a um there's like a tag match that was part of a, I want to say like a number one contenders tag team tournament that had some interesting guys in it, but it only goes like 10 minutes. Like it's nothing you would even want to pick up a DVD for. Um, and so there's really nothing, there's really nothing on this to really draw in like a Southern contingent of fans here. Um, and on top of that, like this, this show's in the middle of fucking nowhere. It's in this, it's in this, um, I want to say it's like a 4-H fairgrounds building here in Lumberton, like Lumberton itself being, 40 miles south of Fayetteville and in Fort Bragg and like 80 miles north of Myrtle Beach like just in the middle of absolutely nowhere like it's a town it's a small town of like 20,000 people it's not just some you know dirt road but it's it's not centrally located it's not easy to get to it's nowhere that that people are familiar with um so you know they draw basically nobody but in spite of all that this match is tons of fun um these guys all come come into this like ready to play they're totally game to give this small crowd as much as as much as they are a crowd um they come into this ready to give these people a great crowd pleasing match in front of like in front of basically zero people (laughs) um and it allows these guys to work in a really uh like a really intimate way like a really they work with these people on like a personal individual level in a really fun way um, I, I think Nikki, especially like this is, this is around the time that Nick Gage is, is developing into the person that we know him to be through, uh, the back half of the 2010s in which he's like extremely charismatic and, and really like was able to form a, a, a new fan, a new base of deathmatch fans out of nowhere, basically single-handedly. Um, this is the beginning of him developing that sort of charisma and you can see it as he's, as he's like hyping up people individually here. Um, and it helps that these guys are all over. You know, these are three of the biggest stars in CZW at this point. And they've been feuding with each other for a while. Like, Nikki and Drake have been feuding directly and indirectly since, like, 2007 at this point. Um, Drake and Mox was part of the big, was part of, like, the big CZW feud in 2009. Mox and Nikki have been, like, the central feud of the company here in 2010. Um, and so, like, these people are, like, huge into Nikki here and are dying to see him win here. And when he eventually does, it, it, it's, like, a huge reaction from, again, 30 people. Um, and Nikki, in turn, is on fire and delivers, like, what to this point is probably one of the better performances of, of his entire career. Um, and as for, the like, the content of this match, it's real goofy and fun. Like, these guys just brawl all over the building and outside the, the immediate area outside of it. Um, with the crowd, <laughs> like these 20 or 30 people, like following them around everywhere, like puppy dogs, just on their feet the whole time going nuts. Um, they do stuff like, like Drake 
grabs Mox by the hair and runs like the whole length of this Forage building and just tosses him face first into the wall and and, and, and Mox takes his big silly bump. Like they're they're trading punches in the truck in the beds of like these pickup trucks. Um Nikki goes crashing into the concession stand at one point in what I think is a shoot because like the women who are working the concession stand throw a big fit about it and walk off and are like clearly very mad. Um and the crowd afterward chants like uh fuck the pizza like everybody's just having a great time drake um when they're outside when they're outside like underneath this um underneath the shelter like there's this this big shelter overhang uh with a bunch of picnic tables underneath it um as nikki and mox are fighting in the grass on one end of the shelter like drake gets up on top of these picnic tables and runs down the length of like eight picnic tables and just hits a crossbody on both of these guys and follows it up with <laughs> with doing la casita on the grass like does a fucking llama <laughs> straw cradle it's just the silliest thing in the world um and on top of that it's it's a it's a compelling death match still like these st- these guys are still bleeding all over the place like uh before he does that big crossbody um drake gets his back cut off with some light tubes and he takes a cross or he takes a, a back body drop onto the picnic table and you see this imprint of his bloody back on the table like this just wet splotch of blood and gristle and god knows what and the camera zooms in on it and it's just so it's so gross like it's it's it seems like it's too much blood like it seems too big to have come out of a person like as if it if it had come out of a person that person would be dead and yet Drake just gets up again and, and, and goes back zooming around all around all around the building and all around the venue and it's 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 just a it's a sight to behold. Um later on Mox uh introduces a staple gun into the match and like it's a gets a dollar bill from somebody in the crowd and he staples the dollar to Nikki's head. Um and it sticks there for a second but then falls off. Like it's not it's not a great staple job. Um but Nikki sees that it falls off and immediately grabs the dollar and puts it into his pocket surreptitiously. And it's just the funniest fucking thing in the world to see him do this. To to, to immediately stop selling and break character and just be like, I'm, I'm putting this dollar away. Like, this is mine. And it's just... This this match is chock full of moments like that. Like, it's just a barrel of monkeys in, in one of the strangest, one of the most bewildering settings I've ever seen for a wrestling match. And, like, it's, it's truly something one of a kind. Is this the only CZW match that makes your list? No, I had I had one, uh, I had two earlier. Oh, you did have two earlier uh, okay. with with uh, oh, Gulak. Uh... Yeah, Gulak versus Danny Havoc, and then uh, Thumbtack Jack versus J C Bailey. Okay, is this your highest ranked one? This is the highest ranked of the three. Yeah. Okay. My number thirty six is Zack Sabre Junior versus Timothy Thatcher from Evolve seventy nine, February twenty fifth, twenty seventeen. I'm glad this made your list. This was one of the matches that I was considering for like number one hundred or number one hundred one. And it, it, it didn't stay there, but I'm I'm glad you got it on here. Um career thatcher performance. Yeah. Like Absolutely just incredible shit. Um the viewing experience for this, um, as we as I touched on when um when the twenty seventeen show, the viewing experience for this was a fucking nail biter, man. Um yeah. for as much as I for as much as I love Thatcher, like it very clearly was the right decision to move yeah. on from him. And it was like, four and, mi- and we didn't know it was going to happen. We weren't sure if it w- they were going to pull the trigger. Yeah, like, in a almost like a prayer circle formed, you yeah. know, with um, our little like, group, group of friends while watching this match. It really was like, it, it, <laughs> it, it's so weird because it's like, 
you and me and the rest of our friends were still into Thatcher. And so it was like we we specifically wanted the guy that we still liked, unlike everybody else in the world, we were we wanted this guy to lose just because it was time. Yeah, like really like all like I was like physically nervous. Like if like if there yeah. was like if we had like a video chat going on, like I yeah. would have looked like visibly nervous watching this match. Um and like I still like really um take that live uh, viewing experience into account when talking about this. And then Thatcher puts on one of the best performances of the decade. This guy, um, in the way he just lets loose in a way that he has never let loose before, and talking and talking shit to the crowd, and the sm- and the smugness that he and the smugness that he car- carries himself with. And Le- and Zack Saber Jr. Uh, coming into coming into the boom uh, as the as the hero, they want they want they want to they want to slay this uh, this overbearing king. It's a, it's a super super great atmosphere. Um, mm. The criticism the criticism that you had uh, before uh, about this match about like Zack not really doing much in the way to like make this match super memorable. Like yeah. that's totally fair and correct here. I would say. Um, but like, I don't think that's like anything that take necessarily, necessarily takes away from it because like Thatcher is so commanding. And I think that like, you know, like being like the lesser commanding force when Thatcher is like having an all time night, like yeah. doesn't like, doesn't mean that like Zach didn't hold up his end of the bargain there. I think that Zach is like perfectly fine and good. Um, as the con- as the conquering hero baby face that's, uh, coming in, coming in to take this guy down. And, um, it le- and, you know what leads to one of the most um i guess satisfying and um emotional uh you know title switches that we got mm. um during the 2010s independent wrestling and while yeah. it sucked that it had to come at the expense of Thatcher someone that um we both love and adore and think the world of and think that you know people like you know definitely kind of like unfairly maligned him for things that like ne- weren't necessarily his fault like it, having that attachment to that guy is seeing him just go full blown villain and just tell everybody mm. what he's been feeling um, for this for this like you know almost a year or so. Um, yeah, made for made for a magical night, and it sucks that fucking Gabe has to <laughs> shoehorn other angles in during special moments. Uh, did this um, did this during during did this during the WrestleMania weekend. Uh, twenty not WrestleMania Royal Rumble weekend. Uh, Hero versus Zach match that was yeah, Hero's yeah. farewell. Shoehorn some shit in there, and does it here a month later with uh Zach winning the belt, and immediately you can't fucking wait or set it up on online. <laughs> got to have him. You got to set him versus ACH up right this second after Zach just ended the longest reign, uh, yeah. in evolve history, but. You know what? Gabe's gonna Gabe, and like that's not that doesn't take away from how special this moment was. Yeah, tr- truly, like something that stands out in a big way that that stands out as like even if I don't particularly love it as a match, it is absolutely one of the more memorable moments of of the decade as far as wrestling is concerned. All right, so next up, my number thirty-five is a match that you had a little higher on this list. It's a two out of three falls match for the CMLL World Lightweight Championship between Champion Dragon Lee and Challenger Kamai Itachi from CMLL's uh, December fourth, twenty fifteen Friday Night Show. 
Uh, yeah, I have this at 45. Alright, so, um... You know, sometimes people... People read my reviews or the, they listen to these podcasts and they're kind of thrown off by the fact that, like, every once in a while, every once in a while I really do, like, a, a good Lucha Libre spot fest. Um, and they're like, what, so what about... Like, what about this sort of a match works for me when so many other matches don't? You know, when so many other spot fests... Uh, whether within Lucha Libre or in the rest of the wrestling world, like don't do it for me. Um, and I think I think it comes down to a couple things. Uh, the first of which is like this match has a has a great pace and it, it makes for some great payoffs. Like I think the two out of three fall format, um, or in this case three out of four. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Um, the the the, the multi fall format helps to break up the action and provide. Um, a sense of escalation over time and ensure that like certain moves still feel meaningful because they actually score a pinfall at some point here, you know? Um, I think another thing that helps a lot is like there's with this feud in specific, there's a, a big sense of, of uh, continuation and advancement. Like this is the fifth or sixth singles match that these guys had had in 2015. So they know each other extremely well. And these matches are based around them like reversing or avoiding big moves from their previous matches, like things that they had fallen prey to before. Um, and so like, if you're familiar with this matchup, the way that I was at the time when I was watching this, like it feels huge to see them do that kind of shit here. Um, and it's the sort of thing that like necessarily has like kind of, kind of a short self, uh, kind of a short shelf life. Like there's only so long that you can watch two guys reverse the same moves over and over again before it, before it like loses something like like a few years like when i when i see like kamatachi or or haramu takahashi as he's later become when i see haramu like cut off an apron hurricane rana for the fourth time a couple years down the line it doesn't have as much impact for me as it did the first time watching this in 2015 um and so that necessitates that these guys like try something new to try to change up the formula at some point and I, I think they haven't in like the subsequent matches that these guys have had with each other. Like, I think this is very much the peak of their feud together. Um, I think another thing that, that makes this match in particular stand out is the great camera work. Like, I think one of the um, undervalued things, like one of the underrated things that makes CMLL great sometimes is that they have really strong camera work. Um, and, and in particular with this match, like, they have a they have a great sense of how to shoot dives from from underneath and making them look like these really breathtaking moves. Like in particular, um, a cameraman is like directly underneath Kamatachi when he does one of his big sentons off the corner post to the floor on top of Dragon Lee. Like he's basically falling on top of the cameraman as he's coming down, and it makes it like an unforgettable spot. Um, but the thing that really makes this special, I think, is what I was alluding to earlier with the novelty of the fourth fall. Um, uh, Kamatachi initially wins this match. Like, he he reverses a powerbomb into a Canadian destroyer um, and gets the pin, and the referee doesn't see the dragon. He's got his his foot on the bottom rope. Um, and it's not until people make a fuss, and and I think... Maximo, I think, is the one in Dragon Lee's corner. So, and he and he he comes to the ref and is like, "No, look, he he had his foot in the ropes." And they eventually started off again. Um, and once they restart the match, like Dragon Lee wins and, and retains his title. Um, and it's funny, like I, I think I, I rewatched this to to get this on this list, like I did with all these other matches. 
and when I rewatch it, I think, I think they do specifically say when they're announcing that the match is restarting, they don't say that they're restarting the third fall. I think they do say like they're having another fall. I think yeah. they say otro caída. And so when I was like, th- like this was before, um, I'm pretty sure this was before they were live streaming any of these CMLL shows or if, or if they had been doing that at this point, I was not watching them just yet. Um, so really, like I was following along with this stuff on Woo. I was following along with this stuff on on 420 Chan's wrestling blog or wrestling subboard, um, in in the Lucha Libre thread that they had there. And so, like when when people who were in the know or or people who were getting word from elsewhere were talking about this match as it was happening, and saying, "Oh, they did a fourth fall in this two out of three falls match," like we all went nuts about that. Like it became this fun little meme that like really cemented our love of this match just because like it was such a big, such a over the top, such a dramatic thing that they actually added a fourth fucking fall to a two out of three falls match. (laughs) Um, And it's, I don't know. Like it's the sort of thing that seems silly in retrospect, but it like, it's, it's part of like what made this thing so much fun and why it's still like one of my favorite matches from this year. Like I think I had it at um, uh, number three, in 2015 and it's still in that spot here um along with some some other matches that i think are really noteworthy really legendary in some ways and it's i don't know it was just such a great experience watching this the first time like watching um specifically i was so excited to see this that like i watched all of their previous singles matches in 2015 back to back to back to back to back when this was uploaded so that i could go into this with all of the context of all of those fresh in my mind and like I've never done that for like anything else. You know what I mean? Like this is this is really a one of a kind match. Yeah, as I was thinking of like uh the kind like, you know, what uh Kamatachi um Dragon Lee match I wanted to put on here. Like I th- I thought about well the mask versus mask match and how like crazy it was to see those two guys, you know, two young guys yeah. go out there and just kill it on such a big uh CMLL show. I thought about um even the new yeah, I thought about uh Fantastic Mania and even New Beginning in Osaka, uh, the one point yeah. seventeen. Like those being like, you know, Kamatachi is like, you know, moments in the sun. Like that he doesn't yeah. that he doesn't get in Mexico because the only matches that he won in Mexico were lightning matches. Um yeah. And I thought about this and I thought the and I realized the one that really did stuck with me the most is like that pure like shock and moment of joy. When they're like, okay, we're not gonna end in a fall. We're not gonna end in a draw here. How about another fall? Like, yeah, like it's a it's a real moment of like, oh shit, they're gonna wrestle some more. Yeah, like after already <laughs> like just going completely insane and doing like after all that yeah, after doing like some of the most bonkers shit in the world. Like, oh, we're doing more wrestling. <laughs> yeah, like like it's such a genuine and they don't they don't do too much either. Yeah. Like they only go for another minute or two, but it but like just the the sheer concept of it alone was so exciting. Yeah, like it's definitely I'm I, I echo your sentiment there. Even if if it was the same experience, I'm experiencing it like uh in like in a, in a in a streaming group, just you know catching it when it um when it then when it then hit YouTube and yeah. getting to it and getting to it and seeing like you know the tease of a fuck finish happening. And then, like the uh, when you, when you like kind of catch up to what's going on, and it's like, oh, they're wrestling again. It's uh, definitely a standout experience watching watching that match. And when I think of Dragon Lee versus Kamitachi, like, um, I th- like for me, I think this is a 
definitely the match that stands out the most. Yeah. Um, my number 35 is uh, Johnny Gargano versus Tommaso Ciampa from NXT TakeOver New Orleans 2018. Ooh, this one's a little higher on my list, so we'll talk about it later. Uh, as we will also do for my number 34, because you're definitely going to have it higher than me. It's Kazuchika Okada versus Katsuyori Shibata from New Japan's Sakura Genesis 2017. Yeah, that'll be last episode. Um, my number 34 is Atlantis versus La, Som- La Sombra from CMLO 82nd Anniversario uh, Interesting. 2015. I wasn't sure that you were going to have this one. Um, it didn't make it on my list, which is not to say that it's bad. Like I, I, I like it a whole lot. I'm glad to see it made it on yours. La Sombra puts on a fucking show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. dude. He, All-time great performance from him. Dude is unreal and spectacular. And goddamn them for making, like, a dude that, like, <laughs> should have been, like, on every anniversario card for the next fucking 10, oh, 15 God. years. Like, just and, and, being fantastic. <laughs> and, like, think about it. Like. Our friend, um, our friend Simon, who we've we've referenced many times here already, our friend Simon over at Handwork Reviews, his 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 blog on WordPress, um, he's been reviewing a lot of 2010 stuff recently, and has been uh, watching the thousands, seemingly, of matches between La Sombra and Volador Jr. And it's like you watch a performance like this, and you just think, this is what he does when he's got one foot at the door. Like, imagine what he could have been doing instead of all those fucking Volador matches. Oh, my God. Ugh. And, like, obviously the dude get, like, does get to do some great shit in WWE sure. for, like, you know, like, you know, and, and, more, and, more, and more bits and pieces. But, like... Yeah. Stuff that made your list. Yeah, you know? like, but this guy is on another level here. Like, right. when he didn't have to be. He didn't have to. He didn't have to do this. Like this dude was, you know, stays what a couple more months has a has a, a awesome match with Roosh on the way out. But like, yeah, didn't have to do this at all. But you know what? This is the biggest stage in Mexico, and he was gonna go out with the bang. And yeah. like, wow! Like I feel like Atlantis has a has a uh, has a lucha de apuestas match. That's that's better. That's better than this. Uh, Atlantis in the gravitas that comes with um that comes with him in this spot. Like no matter if it's 2000 or 2015, like it still hits like the exact same way. Um, and even if he's a little bit older, a little bit more, a little, a little bit more, uh, broken down when he starts hitting, when when he starts hitting those tilt a roll backbreakers, when he gets you, when he, when he gets him up for the Atlantida and the drama and emotion in the shrieks and cries, that right. you hear, like, you know, seeing Atlantis, you know, try his best to vanquish this much younger and more athletic foe, it's mm. so engaging. Um, and I think, you know, like, Atlantis, Atlantis, he just always, he always has that. There might be guys that you, you know, feel like you could throw on a random match of theirs in, uh, you know, probably find, you know, find, find it better, whether it's Nego Casas or... Blue Panther, or whoever you want to throw, whoever you want to throw out there, that like you know, as I got older in age, we're still wrestling. But even on Nego Casas' best day, even on Blue Panther's best day, like when if like if they were in these spots, I don't think they could do what Blue what, what Atlantis is doing here. Sure, they could like they like they don't invoke the same kind of reaction, the same kind of like genuine like you know tugging at the heartstrings you know what the idea of them like losing their livelihood and losing this mask like 
or losing their hair, whatever it whatever it would have been, like they they're they're not invoking the same emotion. Atlantis mm. is sacred. He is yeah. sacred. Like, you know, like like that like this guy like almost like uh you know, almost be almost becomes like, you know, like, you know, don't want like, you know, like uh be like super hyperbolic here, but almost feels like he kinda like takes like uh Santito like Santito's mantle kind of. Of like of like sure. of like that uh of like that face of CMLL. And like yeah. these fans these fans live and die by him. And you couple that with the uh, all-time performance from La Sombra here and mm-hmm. uh you know the reveal of the most beautiful man in the world and like you know <laughs> what, what what more could you ask for yeah it's it's great stuff like there's there's really nothing else like the feeling of a big apoistas match that really lands and and it didn't make my list in part because i think it's sort of it's another one of those one man shows that it's sort of hard to justify on a list like this but like God damn, this one feels huge. So next up, uh, we have my number 33, which you're going to have higher than me, unless I'm totally forgetting. It's uh, John Cena versus CM Punk for the WWE Championship at WWE Money in the Bank 2011. Yeah, we'll get to that this episode, so we can get to my 33. A match that I am entirely stunned that you don't have. It is Mad Blanky. Of Cyber Kong, Kness, Monday Ryu, Naruki Doi, and Yamato versus Jimmy's of Genki oh. Horiguchi, <laughs> Naoki Tanizaki, Yasushi Kanda, Susumu Yokosuka, and Ryu Saito. It is from uh, Dragon Gate, Dangerous Gate, uh, 2015, and it is a unit disbandment match. Wow, yeah. Uh, this was my. Uh, I think this was my number two match of the year in 2015, something I absolutely loved um, that has not. Um, held up in the ways that I felt comfortable with including it on this list. Um, uh, but I, I don't know. I still have some affinity for this match. I'm surprised you had it. Did you rewatch it? Yeah, I actually rewatched it. Like, because it's, it's before... hard to find. Like, it disappeared off the internet for a little bit, and then the version that that came up again was incomplete. Like, it was the edited down version. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot where I. I forgot where I saw it, but I even saw this a couple of years ago. I think I'm, I'm not sure if I have it saved on my computer or not. I I but. know I have I have a full version of it saved, um, that I only realized recently that I had on my on my uh, external hard drive, and I think I shared it with you guys. But up until yeah. up until that, that was I think it. I think I thought that this match was lost forever in its full form. Um, this is. Like you know, I, I'm obviously I'm very uh, partial to uh, Monster Express. Totally, but this is one of the most beloved and lovable units that you could possibly think of. Right. You know, like look at this, look at this collection of guys, like <laughs> guys that you know, guys that are like you know, uh, Dragon Gate slash you know Toriyaman legendary guys and Susumu and Sai and Saito and Horaguchi and throwing in um different and then throwing in uh people like Kagatora and Aoki Tanazaki and even Yusushi Kanda. Like yeah. it's such a lovable unit that like represents like a lot of different things. But like when I different when I think of the Jimmies, I think of people like people that like when you talk about the history of Dragon Gate, like they're almost like super undervalued. Uh-huh. Like the contribute the, the contributions of Susumu and Genki and Ra- and Rai Saito like almost go completely unnoticed. Uh, not to mention and, Kanda. Uh, like I, I think we mentioned yeah. earlier, like Kanda is like one of the great heels of the promotion's history, and you never hear people talk about it. 
and like to sit there and have these guys kind of get that moment to like uh like really like the ultimate reference to like caring and paying attention to yep. like the lore of uh of the Dragon Gate system is perfect and goes along against facing one of the best one of the best heal units that that that, that Dragon Gate has produced in Mad and Mad Blinky. Right. Um when you look at the Mad Blinky side it feels kind of light, right? Compared compared to <laughs> compared to Jimmy's. Like you see Cyber Kong and Kness and Monday Ryu, but then you also have Naruki Doi and Yamato. And, and between punch, like Punch isn't actually in this, right? Yeah, Punch isn't in this. Okay. Um and you ha- and you have um this version, this version of Bad Blinky that you're like, ah, uh, you know, the like the last three guys, like, yeah. you think on paper, like, you know, aren't really holding up there into the bargain. But as far as like real hateable, despicable heels, they're perfect. For, they're perfect for this. Like, they don't, you know, Naruki Doi and Yamato can hold up the hold up the work portion just fine. Those are guys that like the in ring portion, the crazy, the crazy sequences, encounters, and reversals, and uh, finishing stretches. Doi and Yamato can hold up that end just fine. In order to really maximize what this match is all about and trying to accomplish, you need to have hateable heels that fill their role. And you're not going to sit there and try to cheer for Cyber Kong or K-Ness or Monday Ryu. Right. Um, and I didn't like this match as much as you did. Um, I guess when we were, when we were talking about Dragon Gate 2015, yeah. like we're, like we're uh, apt to um, in our... Uh, <laughs> it comes our, up a lot, yeah. Chat. And... And I didn't like this as much as uh, as much as you did, and I think that's part of what made me want to go back and like think about this is that man, this really is kind of like a important, maybe not like just like super important, but it's like one of the feel good moments of this drag of this Dragon Gate run, right? Totally. You know, Mad Blanky, who had already just ran through Millennials, I believe, I believe earlier, I believe, I believe earlier in the year, and Mad Blanky, you know, despite uh. Not uh, despite not holding any gold, gold at the moment, uh, were a, were a super credible and threatening force going going up against the Jimmies, and to see the Jimmies overcome that, uh, a crowd that's super behind them, I really I really love the stuff uh, with Susumu and with Susumu in the final stretch, and obviously the big moment here is Kness, uh, Susumu's former tag team partner, time, gets yeah. involved gets involved in turns and turns on mad Bl- and turns on mad blanky giving the jimmies the opening to uh win the match it's one of the best it's one of the best moments that drangate produced in a uh in a really strong year for them and that stands out a lot for me i can totally un- i can totally understand um reasons why this match might not have aged as well comparatively you know pass it off to you in a second so you can expound on that there yeah but for me I think of this, and it's not the best unit disbandment disbandment match of the decade, but it's one that I remember a lot, and um, I'm glad that guys like Susumu and Genki and Saito and even Yasushi Kanda got a moment here that they didn't really get to have any other time during the decade. Yeah, you really hit it. Uh, you really hit the nail on the head there by by describing it as like the the big standout match for me for um what was a really strong year for dragon gate like a really stacked year probably the best year of the decade for them um and and yeah like i i talked earlier in one of these episodes i forget which but i talked earlier in one of these episodes about how um ishii versus hanma from february of 2015 was probably my favorite uh viewing experience ever in in wrestling and this is right up there with it like once again like just crowding in 
with a bunch of people on a on a streaming service and 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 in a chat room and, and just watching this and going nuts in the middle of the night and and being super invested and and seeing Jimmy's uh, see Jimmy survive you know just like to stick around as a team just because I thought these guys this this bunch of um, oddballs these bunch of dorks were just so lovable and so enjoyable and and like you said like Mad Blanky said already taking out millennials another team I really liked um, not just earlier in the year earlier in the month like this is only a couple weeks afterward. Um, and, and so like it was it seemed like the the writing was on the wall for Jimmy's but they stuck it out and, and it provided for um, a match I really liked at the time one that I don't know maybe it was just more of a more of a time and place thing and so it doesn't hold up in the same way today but I don't know I still I still like it broadly speaking um, looking at like I guess like looking toward the rest of your list like do you feel do you feel like um you placed more emphasis on how things aged versus like, you know, how they made you feel um, at a certain point of time. Just like thinking about things you've said on this episode yeah. and on the episode prior, um, it feels like that's a thing that like, maybe you kind of like uh distance yourself from while uh, compiling this list. Yeah. Like um, I mentioned it at some point here, but like really what the criteria came down to was like, does this still take my breath away? Like, does this come at me like a, like a punch in the gut? yes or no um and stuff that was a no was hard to justify to keep um just because like i don't know that this this process took a long time like we've been working on this since like may um but it really at various times like it really felt like we were coming down the wire where it was where i would look at this list and i'd just be like i feel strongly about 60 70 of these matches but that remaining like 40 or 30 matches um are sort of up in the air and it it was it was really strange to be in the situation of being like, I don't know that I have enough to say about this, about this stuff that I should love. Um, and it, 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 I sort of like scrambled around to try to find stuff that I could actually say something about really. Um, which was a lot of the, a lot of the criteria that, that, that got stuff on this list it was just like, can I say something here? Can I, can I actually expound on this match in some way? And I found that like with this one, I was just going to be repeating myself. I was just going to be saying stuff that I'd said before about Dragon Gate matches, and, and like that didn't that didn't really feel right. Uh, all right, we can we can move on to your thirty-two. Okay, my thirty-two is the second of two Chikara Cybernetico matches on this list. Uh, this one featuring uh, the team of Team Chikara, led by Eddie Kingston. Ultraman is black. Who whose shirt I'm wearing right now? I just realized. Um, Eddie Kingston, Ultraman is Black, Hollow Wicked, Frightmare, Scott Parker, Shane Matthews, Gran Akuma, and Tim Donst taking on the ROH contingent of Kevin Steen, Jimmy Jacobs, the Briscoe Brothers, the Young Bucks, and the Bravado Brothers, Harlem and Lancelot, from Chikara's The Cybernetico Rises on November 18th, 2012. Yeah, I have not seen this at all, so take it away. So yeah, like I, uh, like I said before in our first episode, the Chikara Cybernetico is one of my favorite types of matches and i think this was the best one of the decade um you get all the usual highlights of this kind of match with a bunch of you know, uh, a bunch of interweaving narratives and constantly shifting action and a wide variety of characters but what what makes this one really special is the setting and the bad guys the villains in question um this takes place in the uh, the highline ballroom up in manhattan which is a venue there's a venue I think Chikara's run a couple times, uh, one of which was, 
I think for one of the matches they booked Minami Toyota for, like I think they ran Quack in Toyota versus Sara Del Rey and Claudio Castagnoli here at some point. Um, and then they also ran here in this show. And it's a small little intimate room in Manhattan. You know how it is. Like a bunch of people packed in together and they're super packed into this building. And it makes for um, even more of like an intimate high energy uh, atmosphere than your usual Chikara show. Um, and then the real big thing is that this ROH team is just full of utter brigands and bastards and they are all on fire. Like even the bravados guys who I don't think are particularly great wrestlers really bring something to this match. Um, but it's especially those other six guys. It's Steen, Jimmy, the Briscoes and the Bucks who are phenomenal. Like six guys who know how to rile up a crowd, six guys who know to get, how to get under someone's skin. And they do that here with great aplomb and just chew the scenery and piss people off for like, 65 minutes like it's relatively speaking this is short for a cybernetico match um but it's it's action-packed stuff the whole time it's really um exciting aggravating stuff the whole time as these guys just dismantle your favorite heroes and then the good guys come out in the end and win the match though tim donst the the villain of the the babyface team is actually the guy who who's the last man standing but still chikara gets the win and it's a big deal um and yeah like it's just it's my favorite it's probably one of my favorite kinds of matches um and this was the best one of the 2010s um my number 32 is outsiders versus hot and spicy of uh oh, wow well, oh shit well i should say outsiders of walter and robert dreisker facing hot and spicy axel leader jr and the mac hmm. from wxw hamburg november 16th 2013 you had this way higher than I thought you were going to. I had this at, like, number 90, I think. Yeah, um, I didn't expect to have it this high as I was, uh, as I was doing this. And the more I just kept looking at the list and on a, I guess, like, work level, the work still holds up for me. The work still, uh, stands out. The control segment, the bleeding, the emotion of it, uh... Uh, Axel Dieter Sr. getting up in front, of help, in front of help his son and the moment of them winning the belts like it, is, it, it all still connects for me um, in a way that when I first saw it I was blown away and I still had the same reaction to it right uh, not the best not the best not the best tag match um, <laughs> of the decade of the, of the decade for me I have what one more tag sure um, that, I ha- that, that I have here but yeah, I totally see having it down and down in the nineties. But for me, as I was as I continued going through this list, I thought about everything that this match accomplishes, um and the fact that it's so straightforward. Um and I and I and I valued that. That it wasn't the most complicated thing in the world, it wasn't the most um uh long and drawn out thing in the world. It just feels like uh everything got nailed perfectly in what became sort of like a, uh, like a mat, like a magical night. And I'm really glad that our friend, uh, our, our friend, our friend Harrison, you know, former wrestler, <laughs> Harry Zen, yeah. uh, showed, enlightened us to, to this match that really could have gone unnoticed. And the Walter and Dreisker tag team being these big formidable monsters going up against a significantly, smaller le- uh much less rugged uh Dieter Jr and in the Mac here uh the ble- the bleeding 
It's not the most. It's not the craziest. Not the craziest blade job, but gets the but gets the job that's done. That's a lot of blood. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot, but it's not the, not the not the craziest one. That's uh, that's gonna that's gonna make a list here, obviously. Totally, yeah. Um, and uh, we talked we touched we touched on it earlier with the Zach versus Walter match, but Hamburg is a uh-huh. phenomenal venue, phenomenal place, phenomenal crowd, phenomenal atmosphere, and like they're no small part of what makes this match uh transcend here and, and get it and get it and get it on a list like this. So. Anything, anything that uh, you'll say? Obviously, you won't say anything bad about it. It made your mm. list. Well, but yeah. like, uh, but anything that you could that you could say, uh, saying why, uh, I guess, quote unquote, only lands at ninety. Like, it's perfectly fair and valid. But I think as I was just going through, uh, uh, composing this, yeah, that you know, the moment of these guys winning feels as triumphant as any moment of the decade, and. For people that I don't particularly care about, like I don't really care about sure, Dieter right. Jr. in the Mac, right? Absolutely. And I think that that, and I think that I think that that's a testament to how much this match works. That like these guys I'm not particularly super into, uh, still reel me and still uh still uh tell such a uh, such a compelling story that lands it here at thirty two. Yeah, like I um, it's funny you you uh brought up Harrison with this because it's funny you framed it specifically as like him introducing us to this match because I had known him about this match previously, like I had um if I've if I haven't mentioned this before publicly I'll I guess I'll do it now like I'd been a I'd been a WXW fan for a long time I'd been a WXW fan since like uh, two thousand eight two thousand nine somewhere around there. I think I think both I think both of us but like this is like a ra- like this like kind of like theoretically is like a random like quote-unquote kind of house show thing relatively like, speaking yeah. yeah like really yeah, like relatively it's not you know it's not like dead end or back to the roots or what or whatever else like right. this is wxw in hamburg so like even though if i was a fan of wxw like i can totally see in like you know 2014 or 2015 or whatever even as wx now is like up that like i could skip over this well that's i don't know that's the thing is like i was i was a fan at the time um, and I don't truthfully, truth be told, like I, I hadn't watched WXW in a while when this happened, but somehow I heard about it. Like some, like I was maybe following their Facebook page or something and I saw someone talking about it or something. Um, but yeah, like I saw this match around when it happened and it really blew me away. Like work wise, it's not particularly great. Like I, I don't like Dieter. I don't like Demac. I don't think they're particularly good even today. Um, yeah. they, they certainly weren't at this point as much younger guys. Um, and it's a really straightforward match. Just like the, the two big outsiders, the two big foreigners, um, just beating down on them in front of, in front of another, none other than, uh, Axel Dieter senior, uh, Dieter's dad, you know, one of the most famous wrestlers here in, in Germany. Um, it's not, just, not, not just that. I think, I think I think the Mac is from Hamburg too, right? Like they're like they're both like I they're both they're, right. bo- they're yeah they're I think they're both from Hamburg, right? Like they're 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 super local. Like they're they're beloved for a variety of different reasons. Um, and and so like the match is like really simple and and straightforward. A little over long too, and I don't like I don't particularly like half the guys in it. But when I saw it, it felt like such a big deal, and it felt like such a triumphant moment, like you were saying. Um, and it felt like like the reason I put it on this list is because like it felt like the sort of thing that that made me realize oh WXW could be something bigger than what I know it as like it could be something bigger than just this weirdo European deathmatch fed it could be something bigger than just like 
the place where people go to on vacation when they don't want to work in the United States or they don't want to work in Germany. Like they just go there and have a tour and drink a lot of beer. Um, like this is, this is like the first indication you get that WXW is capable of being one of the biggest indies in the world, which they eventually built to later in the decade. And it's, it's that reason really like that reason, like that triumphant moment, one of the biggest moments really in the history of the fed, I would argue that that gets mm-hmm. it on this list. All right. What do you have at 31? At 31, I've got a match that you listed a little lower than me. It's, um, I want to say the last of my WrestleMania matches. It's Brock Lesnar defending the WWE World Heavyweight Championship against Roman Reigns as well as Seth Rollins at WWE WrestleMania 31. Yeah, I have that at 64. So so you officially label it as a triple threat, right? I... I put Rollins' name in brackets, in parentheses, okay. so it's sort of like that. All right. Like, I, I don't, I don't know. I think it's I think it's weird to call it a triple threat in totality, but I, I always include Rollins. Okay. Um, well, I, I had this on a 64. Right. Um, beyond this just being a great Lesnar match, like a great Lesnar fireworks show, um, beyond this being like an all-time great beatdown from him, uh, this is a star-making match, I would say. Um, as we, as I've mentioned before, repeatedly on this podcast, really, um, I came into this match not liking Roman at all. Like thinking Roman, Roman needed this. He needed. Yeah, this. He really did. I came in. I came into this not liking him at all, thinking he was not ready for this kind of spot. Um, thinking, like recognizing that he was being miscast in a variety of ways. Like recognizing that he was getting some like really awful promos. And, and, and some bad angles that did no favors for him. Um, but at the same time, I thought like, well, this is WWE. I know that their material often sucks, but I've seen so many other wrestlers rise above that or or manage to like separate them from that. Like manage to say, hey, I'm great and I'm better than the shit that they're feeding me. You know, I'm better than the shit that they're handing me to read on screen. Um, and for whatever reason, like I never got any of that from Roman during this build. Like instead it's just these Jack and the Beanstalk promos and all this shit, you know, <laughs> like all these, all these matches where I, where I come away thinking he's the lesser man that he didn't earn a, a victory or anything. And it's just, I don't know. I had such a bad taste in my mouth with him coming into this, but then he comes into this match and he really takes his lumps, like really gets his ass beat by a Lesnar. And he has a strong comeback in which he looks like more befitting of the spotlight than he has ever before. Um, I think in large part because Lesnar is an all-time great bumping, uh, all-time great uh, bumper and seller, especially for a big man. Um, And then critically, Roman doesn't get everything handed to him in the end anyway. Like Seth comes in and steals the belt. And I think, I think that's the thing that really seals the deal for me um, is having him get his moments stolen away in the same way that like so many other of my favorite top WWE stars did like the way that Austin had his moment stolen away at, uh, at a uh, WrestleMania 13 where, where Brett like killed him basically <laughs> um, the way that Brian did the way that uh, punk uh, arguably did um, having like having the giving him this grievance made him all the more endearing and all the more sympathetic in a way that like, he wasn't able to portray in his matches just yet. And so as he improved over time with me, with this being like the defining moment 
um, like my defining memory of him as he continued to improve over time. He eventually gets to a point like at the end of this year where I think, Oh, he's definitely a good wrestler. And to the point where today I think of him as something of a great wrestler. Um, and it's all because like, they don't, they don't just hand him the belt regardless. Like I, I think if literally everything is the same about this match, other than the fact that Rollins cashes in and steals the thing away, I think I wouldn't like it. It wouldn't end up on this list. I think it's I think it's that that heist of the century that really makes me that really makes me like open up to Roman. Um, and then I like that I I like that heist a lot. I think it's like one of a very few um, number of WrestleMania moments that really works for me. Like I I don't care for Rollins. Uh, I don't want to see him win. I really did not like the reign he had after this, but I think the idea of the moment itself is so good and they execute it so well that, that I can't help but like get caught up in it. And then, yeah, on top of everything else, it's a Lesnar match, like one of his best ever, like an incredible beatdown from him where he just rips into Roman, like, like the suplex city bitch thing, which was like instantly so exhilarating and and that big slap he does and some of those knees like Take, just, taking the taking the gloves off <laughs> absolutely like he this is one of his great matches and it's and it's the thing that like really that really got me to open up to to roman reigns for the first time and i don't know like that's i that's a star making match you know like how else could i describe it i think you said something that people like kind of forget and gloss over like they always kind of say oh why were they such cowards why didn't they just have to put the belt on roman there right and it's like you know it's easy to like just kind of go back to like cena versus brock from 2012 like how do like like the main critique that people have of that match is like that cena won that match and that it feels like almost like so unrealistic and like goes into like feeds like to the, like the super cena like uh idea that people have that he would sit there and just beat Brock like that. Like Roman doesn't Roman doesn't get that. Uh-huh. Roman like literally is the one that gets the moment stolen and not only that, he's the one that takes the fall when uh-huh. Roman when when Seth comes in. Like everything everything about it is um like you said completely uh strays away from doing what like what, what, what would doom roman yeah like you said it, it, it puts him in a position where he still has to work and mm-hmm. in, in making him work for it eventually endears me to him yeah and his performance here he started he started he started winning me over with the fat with the fast lane main event a uh, match that i liked at the time and like even more now but yeah like what more what more could you want from this guy in this position, like Roman, we talk about Brock being such a uh, good seller for his size. Right. Same thing applies for Roman here. Right. Who totally. Takes a fucking beating. Like the throw, the throws, the strikes that let the strikes that Lesnar's hitting that, that Lesnar is hitting him with. Um, it's so compelling. I'll be honest with you. So, I watched this match uh, live, um, in. The thing I remember most is my dad was um, leaving to move to Texas that same night. Sure. So um, he's bringing by like these like heavy ass bags of like fucking uh, all the bootleg DVDs that he had had. <laughs> okay. Um, over that he that he had uh piled up over the years. I'm like bringing them over here. I guess like to give to us or whatever. And I'm saying like, hey, like you should like you know like stay like stay and watch this. And it's me and my brother and my dad just. Having the best time watching <laughs> Roman Reigns get thrown around like this. Like, 
cracking jokes, just like laughing mm. at how much Roman's getting his ass kicked. And like, that's a real fun memory. Yeah. But as I'm sitting there making the jokes and laughing, I'm thinking like, man, this is a really fucking good match. <laughs> like, like even while I'm sitting here kind of like enjoying Roman, like deal with that. I'm still in the back of my mind, like, man, he's, he's really good in this. This is really awesome. Right. It's like, uh, like you, you talk about like the moment and how the moment, uh, of Seth cashing in, uh, really, you know, keeps this from being a thing where Roman appears like this guy handed to him and they just said, yeah. fuck it. We're going to do what we want. And Roman Reigns is our guy. And if you don't, if you don't like it, then you can fuck off. Like right. it prevents it from being a moment like that, but it, really at its core still, it's like so wild to even think about. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, the fact that they had a good cash in for the first time, like for the first time since what, Brian? Oh, I would say earlier. I, I think this was probably the first good cash in since like the first one. Or maybe like Ziggler. I wasn't watching at the time. I couldn't really tell you how that one was. Mm-hmm. Like the first, like the first good cash in, you know, in a while. And like, you know, when you go through the history of the cash ins, they mainly, they mainly suck. Yeah. And like, it just is like a, you know, it's a, it's this weird moment of a weird thing of like in the moment, it, it like the, like the moment still feels great, and then the match also ages really well too. Right, like it it, it kind of has this perfect balance where like the Rollins cash in moment is timeless, but then the mat but then the match itself like almost gets better as the as the years go on, and like WWE can rarely ever hit that kind of sweet spot right. without go without going uh too far into or too far into one or the other and you know it's completely by accident it's completely it's completely by accident i don't think they knew that roman reigns would go out there and be that good that night right i think they just wanted him to be a star and that you know we'll we'll see where we go from here but roman swam roman did you know roman you know roman roman didn't sink that night and you talk about it being a star maker and it absolutely is i thought roman showed that he could work but you know that's with uh daniel bryan and Hmm. Going out there and doing that with Brock Lesnar, um, I think obviously like Brock, like, you know Brock being an all-time great too. But Roman showing that in that uh, I guess two-month span that he can hold his own with the best. Uh, yeah, you can't talk about the 2010s without Roman Reigns pro- proving himself. Um, where are we at here? Okay, my number thirty-one is Kazuchika Okada versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from New Japan Pro Wrestling. King of Pro Wrestling, October 14th, 2013. This one did not end up making my list. Tanahashi had a self-imposed uh, stipulation here. Yeah. That if he didn't win the belt facing Okada right here, um, that he would never challenge Okada for the belt again. And... Tanahashi wrestles that match, wrestles the match the exact same way. He wrestles it with the urgency and a desperation that we have like never seen from him. Right. It's almost jarring to see the guy that's always in control. Think of like when is Hiroshi Tanahashi never the one that's dictating that's dictating the story, dictating the narrative, dicta- dictating like what's going to happen here. Yeah, like even you go back to like some of his earliest title reigns. Like back in like 2007, 2006. And like even then, he's sort of wrestling these title matches like that. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a guy that's always maintained full control, full composure, always level headed. 
And this is the first time where, you know, although Tanahashi has a plan, although Tanahashi has, like, little tricks, like him feigning the injury and then getting up and, like, fucking hopping on his leg, playing the guitar. Like, even though he has these things that he's doing, it's the first time that we see Tanahashi, like, desperate. Right. And I think that realization that, oh, shit, he's actually better than me now, really fucked with Tanahashi. Um... And to see it wrestled that way, and to see him, like, Tanahashi almost, like, I think he, I think he wrestled, he he pretty much wrestles a perfect match. You know, looking, like, he does everything that he could do. He does, he's not doing anything wrong here. He's doing the best that he can to make this work. And Okada just is too good at this point. He's figured it out. And And Tanahashi, uh turning in a performance that I think is super memorable, even in the context of this series, where, like, every match, I feel like, has a memorable moment or theme to it. Sure. Tanahashi's, Tanahashi's performance, um, you know, takes us already a great matchup, and a match that's already, like, you know, foolproof and impossible to, like, you know, be bad or, you know, be less than good, and, you know, takes it and makes it, like, a key narrative point in, um, uh, in the direction that the Okada and Tanahashi, Tanahashi story takes. And you can, like, say whether that's booking or whether Tanahashi's performance there, but I feel like when talking about a match, you can't really, like, separate the, separate the two and what makes it memorable. Like, Tanahashi still has to go out there and execute the story still. And seeing him um, approach, approach Okada, like, he feels like this is his last chance. Like, he feels like, hmm. if I can't beat this guy right now, then I don't deserve to be champion. Really, uh, you know, really, really does uh, benefit the story a lot. And um, obviously, there's more that goes on here that I can't talk, that I can't talk about until we get to another match on my list. Sure, but <laughs> a really great piece uh, in the story of Tanahashi versus Kazuchika Okada. Yeah, this one I don't know. Um, I liked it a whole lot at the time. I thought it was legendary, and then um, I think when I went back and reviewed all their matches in 2018, when we did that book club thing in preparation for the the destruction match that year. Um, I find myself liking it a little bit less. And then every time that I've revisited it since then, I've liked it less and less and less to the point that it didn't wind up on this list. Um, it didn't make my top like 15 matches of 2013 or whatever. Um, and I, and I, it's, I think it's because it's, it's frustrating in some ways where like, I agree with you about like how good Tanahashi's, how, how good Tanahashi's performance is and how fiery he is and, and how you can see him, like how how you can see how tonally different the, the match is for him compared to um compared to many of his other matches but i don't know like in terms of the mechanics of the match like i feel like it's not anything all that different after like the first couple of spots like after the big famous like uh injury fake out like i find myself thinking that this is kind of just a rehash of the invasion attack match like where everybody's just applying the same sort of strategy and it ends up in the same place and it feels i don't know it's 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 a weird situation to be in where like i watch the invasion attack match and i think it's incredible every time and then i watch this one and it's like oh this just feels like kind of more of the same and it has none of the same energy really and that's just a weird place to be in and i and I, I i think it's worth noting too that like you talked about this match eloquently for a little while there and you know i've and i've talked about my complaints with it too but neither one of us has really mentioned kazuchika okada like this very much more so than i think any of the the matches in this series like this really feels like a one-man show um and and, and i think that stands out in a big way 
Um, I hear you, but I also think that like, you know, I I have no problem with the one man show when like the match is about the other person. Sure, totally. Like 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 this very clearly is about Tanahashi. I'm like Tanahashi like clinging to his place, you know, in the company. Right. And like you know realizing that Okada is younger and better shape and has like figured these things out. And like this is very much about Tanahashi like you know fighting for his place in the world. Still. Totally. Yeah. So. Like that, like that's super fair, and like I probably agree with you that more than any other match when you go through their series, yeah, feels like feels has that one man show aspect. But like I said, like I I like I, I'm like, I feel like you know like you could even kind of apply that like same logic to Invasion Attack if you wanted to. Like even though Hiroshi Tanahashi's performance oh. is really good, like I think that it's about Okada. It's about Okada overcoming him. It's about Okada sure, like absolutely like you know overcoming like going through that injury, and it's him having that moment of like. Oh shit, he's tough now. Uh-huh. He didn't. He didn't just catch Tanahashi off guard. He's actually tough. Right. I feel like that's a still about Okada, and I think that this 2013 match. Um, I mean, it's 2013 and King of Pro Wrestling match. Right. It's very much about Hiroshi Tanahashi. Yeah, I suppose that's right. Uh, moving on to number 30 is a match that I'm not sure you've even seen. Really, it's one that I only discovered. Um, discovered, which means I I went on a forum and and looked at some recommended matches and found this. Um, I didn't discover it like I wasn't out in the fucking field um, uh, but it's a match that I didn't know about before a couple months ago it's El Hijo del Santo and Biano Corto taking on El Hijo del Soltario El Hijo del Soltario and Angel Blanco Jr. in a 2 out of 3 falls match from TXT's uh, February 25th 2012 show no I have not but like 2010's El Hijo del Santo is uh, really fun and mm. awesome uh, so I do want to see this. I'm not, I don't think I saw this match in particular. Yeah. Santito, Santito is like one of the great wrestlers ever, especially one of the great, uh, big match wrestlers ever. He, and... he, he keeps, he keeps getting higher and higher on my, on like my like yeah. hypothetical GWE list. The more I watch him. <laughs> yeah. He's a great guy. Um, and so this is just a, a classic Lucha Brawl, just grimy as hell, bloody as hell, mean as hell. Um, after a hot start where our, our heroes, the, the Technicos score with, um, some wild uh, tandem dives. Um, most of the rest of this thing is controlled by the Rudos, um, both of whom are great, uh, especially, especially Solitario. Um, he's this, he's kind of a big guy, like bigger than your average luchador. Um, and he's got this real, like, old, lanky man dirtbag energy. Like a very specific thing that, like, if you pull up this match and you see him in this, you'll be like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, he's always taunting the crowd. He throws like dozens and dozens of these like sick little sucker punches to everybody. Um, there's lots of quality content in this, in this match of like the two Rudos dominating each of the Technicos two on one, like, like fighting them in uneven odds. Um, and you get some great moments of each of the good guys, especially Santito, um, trying to fight a losing battle while outnumbered, um, Tons and tons of violence, like 90% of the match probably is just punches to the face, which is great. Um, a whole a whole lot of great punches, especially from Solitario, especially his, he's got like this great like sucker punch to the gut that he does a couple times. It's just super brutal. Um, some great post shots, some great chair shots, some more wild dives, some good headbutts, just everything you want from a Lucha Brawl. Um, the Rudos take this one too straight, uh, um, but the match is so long. Like it's 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 like thirty five forty minutes something like that. Really? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty lengthy for for this kind of thing. Um, like despite the fact that like they went too straight, like the match is so long and there's like so much in it. 
so much back and forth that like you can't really feel robbed of anything um and you even get more action after the bell like the the the, the version of this that i found has has the post match where both the rudos um challenge for a, a mask match of some kind and the technicos run them off and stand tall so you get some post post match action as well and it's just it's great like i um i this was recommended to me on wko and and i tracked it down and and watched it and it totally blew me away to the point that like immediately i was just like oh this has to be on this list like it it's it stood out to me as like one of the best lucha matches of the year and it's like um i want to say like my fourth highest one something like that and it's like it's 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 just real great. I would I would recommend it to anybody who doesn't even like anybody who who like isn't even a luchador fan like a lucha libre fan. Like I, I think this has has something for everyone. All right, my number thirty is Io Shirai versus Momo Watanabe from Stardom Queens Fest, uh, February eighteenth, twenty eighteen. Yeah, my number. Um, I want to say my number one hundred and one match of twenty eighteen. Uh, not didn't even make my top one hundred necessarily, but uh, this one's all you. I don't think I've had um, a reaction as strong as watching Momo Watanabe kick the shit out of Io Shirai since I've watched it happen. Sure. Uh, it, st- it stands out to me so much just, uh, you know, from a pure audacity standpoint. Like, I'm a, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a big Kenta fan. I'm a big... Um, you know, prime Kenta, or even like just young Kenta fan from yeah. you know two thousand two up until you know, you know when you want to say Kenta's prime ends two thousand nine, whatever, whatever you want to say. Sure. Um, and I just love like these like young punk audacious wrestlers who don't give a fuck who you are, who don't <laughs> care. Like you could be the founder of the promotion, you could be the face of it you could be fucking six foot four giant takiyama like <laughs> who cares i'm going to kick the shit out of you right um that's what makes um uh kiyoshi tamara versus nobuhiko takata from uh i think valentine's day 1993 sure like one of my favorite shoot style matches ever it's one of like the rare ones that have like a re- have like a real like centered story around tamara's respect for um disrespect for like someone like takata right and this Momo Watanabe versus Io Shirai match channels a lot of the same energy that I love about uh, Tamora versus Takata or Kenta versus Takiyama. Like all of that energy is wrapped is wrapped up into this, but the difference is Momo almost actually wins. Right, Momo is beating the dog shit out of Io Shirai, and it is one of the best selling performances I've ever seen. Io looks like she is on the brink of collapse after every kick, after every throw, after like after every hold. Io looks like she is completely thrown off by everything. She did not expect Momo, who's in her unit, like who's in Queen's Quest, to just like beat the shit out of her like this. And Io is on the ropes the entire time trying to find a way to eke out a victory. And Io being one of the best wrestlers in the world, being the best wrestler in stardom, like of course, like she finds a way to like you know get out of the get out of this jam and put the and put the much more uh you know push put the much less less experienced Momo Watanabe down. But Momo Watanabe, and I think nineteen years old by yeah, this point. I was gonna say think, she's super young. 
yeah i think momo's 19 is a stone cold fucking assassin <laughs> like like everything is precise and dangerous looking and mean and crisp and violent and io shirai almost completely folds to like like <laughs> like a fucking teenager mm. it's jarring it's jarring to watch io shirai you know who's again so like always so in control always always the uh the better person in the match usually always the person that you remember coming out coming out of a match always a person that's more dazzling more memorable to see her still be really good again one of the best one of the best selling performances i've ever seen i guess more so when more so when like in like the joshi lens like to see her do that and still not be the best person in the match because momo watanabe is so fucking good right. at just killing her and kicking her it's extremely violent extremely mean uh i'm on the edge of my seat the entire time watching this um i don't th- i don't think i knew the result going into it so i'm just watching this eo versus momo match uh because i watch every EO, eo title defense right and i'm just sitting there with my jaw dropped that holy shit is she just about to like squash io shirai <laughs> <laughs> like is she just about to like beat her in like fucking 15 minutes what's going on here and this was like this was around wasn't this around the time that io was leaving uh yeah we're, we're getting we're getting we're getting close to it yeah so it, like it was conceivable that it was just like well she's gonna have to drop the belt sometime mm-hmm. and like she does want to dropping at the dropping at the moment a few months later but like this first meeting this this initial uh encounter between these two oh man like has left a bigger impact on me than like anything in the year since uh my high my highest ranked uh my highest rank, my highest rank Joshi match. I didn't expect it to be. I didn't expect it to be it. I did. I didn't expect to have it above Kyrie versus Maiko or Io versus Mayu. Yeah. But when I watched it and when I compared it to the rest of these, like you know, even with how good Kyrie's performance is versus Maiko, like I, this one just like you know, it, like left an impression on me that I'm not gonna that I'm not gonna forget anytime soon, and like sure. you know, got better as I wa- as I watched it again, like. Um, I know you're not. A, I know you're not a star rating guy, but I think I had this at like four and a half back, like you know, back um in 2018, and like I bumped it to five, like when I watched it when I watched it again. Like this match blows me away in a way that like not many matches in the decade have since. Uh, so maybe you'll rewatch it at some point. Maybe you'll like it more. Who knows? But like mm. this match is so good, and I uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that this thing left such an impression on me. Right. Well, my number 29 is uh, another standout match from 2018, one that we've talked about before. It's Kyle Matthews defending the Landmark Heritage Championship against Billy Buck in a 30-minute Ironman match from Anarchy Wrestling's Hardcore Hell 20. All right. I didn't expect, I didn't expect some Billy... Actually, no. I saw, I saw your flashcard thing. But Billy Buck on the top 100. Was it down there? I don't remember. Okay. I think I think, I think, I think your flashcard thing had that had this on here. Okay. Um. But yeah, like this was like... I mean, this was one of my top five matches of 2018 so like we talked about it previously like it was it was going to make this list um i don't have a ton about to say it that i uh, to say about it that i didn't say back then but um it's just an exemplary babyface heel match between like two of the finest wrestlers the the southern indies have ever produced um one that makes good of the iron man one that makes good use of the iron man stipulation um making each pinfall or or at least each series of pinfalls feel important um one that features some awesome leg selling from my guy Kyle Matthews, like including him, uh, like changing the way he does certain moves, 
uh, certain signature moves to account for the injury. Like he specifically, um, he does some like frog splashes and like some like repeating frog splashes and like rolls through them in such a way to account for his knee um, in a way that I, I think is really impressive. Um, and on top of all that, it's 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 got a, a bitterly tragic ending with with Billy Buck, the the dastardly heel coming out on top, um, which is always fun, always something that you and I both enjoy a whole lot. And it's I don't know what can I say about it. It's a it's a real great match between two guys I, I like a whole lot who you don't hear about a whole lot, and it's and it's uh, awesome stuff. Still super memorable to this day. Like I, I I had to watch it again to to get it on this list, and it still blew me away. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing I can say to counter that. This match is really fucking great. And um, didn't quite blow me away as much as it blew you away in, tw- in 2018. But phenomenal stuff. Um, and I'm glad Kyle, I'm glad it seems like Kyle Matthews is, uh, re- is, is back to wrestling, it seems like, right? I believe that's true. Yeah, I, um, I, I remember seeing some, uh, I guess, like results and seeing him on, on shows recently. And I remember being glad to see he's back. Uh, I think, you know, remember at the time, like, how disappointing, disappointing it was to... Uh, yeah. Think about think about him hanging it up. Right. My number twenty nine, as you had earlier, it is Walter versus Ilya Dragunov from Ooh. WXW sixteen karat gold, twenty seventeen. And I had that at forty seven. No, another one where it's like you know what is there left to say that like we didn't <laughs> sure. we didn't already cover. Yeah. But like, really, a lot a lot of your sentiments about the um about the Roman versus Brock match, I feel like are, are I feel like are applicable here. Um, obviously Ilya is in like a dire need situation, like Roman, that mm. this matches, that, that this matches a success. Sure. Totally. But in terms of like creating a star, like almost like overnight and granted, like us, like the people that like pay attention to WXW right. and watch WXW, we've always liked Ilya. Ilya has always been fun. Ilya has always been a really good worker. Um, but to come into this, you know, like a more like you know a freshly baby-faced Ilya coming off of leaving Cerberus and uh, the few with bad bones and everything like that, like to see Ilya come in and uh, have a strong run in the tournament and then run into Walter, the face of WXW, the best WXW wrestler ever, the most right. accomplished WXW guy, like right. to hit for him to run into Walter in the finals, like. Who better to help create this star and create like a perfect moment than Walter? And you know we we've all seen it. We've seen Walter beat Ilya's chest until it bled. Right. We've seen the boots that Walter hits Ilya with as he's coming off the ropes. We've seen right. the counters. We've seen the throws. We've seen Ilya fighting for his life, facing this gigantic man and trying to slay this beast. And it's still great. It's still just as great. Like, what you know, despite how much Walter has, uh, you know, used the same formula as like the, as the years have gone on, and like the matches aren't really different in terms of style and structure and um and the themes. Like, it's still just as effective to go back and see something like this when it's done so perfectly. There, like, there's there's nothing that resonates more than a simple story like you talk like you know well, like we've talked about in Ilya overcoming this monster and having this super triumphant moment in front of a very enthusiastic crowd over here for uh for six for 16 carat it makes for one of the most memorable matches of the decade and not only that this is like the WXW's catapult yeah this is like 
the moment for WXW that takes it from stuff that like me, you, and like whoever, like and like whoever, and like whatever else kind of perverts have been watching WXW. <laughs> like you know, like it takes it takes it from being something that was you know known and a destination that fucking Brian Danielson and Chris Hero have been going to sure. for years at this point to oh like this is a really good company. We should actually watch this company, not just watch when uh when the big guys show up this was two this was two like homegrown guys mm-hmm. like it wasn't this was this wasn't like a this wasn't chris hero in the finals this wasn't even zach in the finals um last year this is two of their own guys out here in a in, in, the, in this got that much reception and coverage um and i think for being such a landmark match for wxw i think that's what uh that's a big part and what makes this stand out and uh and earns a spot on this list. Uh, yeah, like, um, the only things I wanted to add were, like, I, I, I wanted to talk about how um, how this match is good in comparison to some of their later matches that I didn't like as much. Um, like, for one thing, this one's got a crowd, which is something that the, the 2020 NXT UK match doesn't have. Um, uh, and it's also a little bit uh, shorter than some of these other matches. Like, I think it's about... Um, eight minutes shorter than the two 2018 matches that they had shortly after uh shortly after this and then i think it's about a full 10 minutes shorter than the nxt uk match um and i think that brevity really helps it a lot uh and and i think walter also shows some more emotion in this one um specifically in like the lead up to the finish like like tries to hype himself up and and talk the crowd down as they're getting behind Ilya, uh, and i think that helps a lot um but really I think what makes this match special and what, what keeps it on something on, on a list like this, as opposed to all the other matches they've had since then um, is what you were talking about. It's the story, like something you can't replicate again. Like you can't, you know, you can't replicate the story of Ilya slowly working up the card over time and, and becoming like this beloved baby face and, and, and leaving Cerberus and, and making his way through this tournament. And you can't replicate Walter like, finally coming into his own and honing his craft and and becoming like one of the biggest wrestlers in the world that we knew like watching him for years like watching him when he was so good but really inconsistent that we knew he could be one day like you can't replicate the moment of this match like the story like the the metaphysical story of this match the meta narrative of this match um you can never recreate that and that's why i think Un, like fundamentally the the rematches in 2018 and, and in 2020 and nxt uk have failed and have never have never captured the moment that was this one yeah like i think that like you know in, in just a great and just a good match sense like of course they can have good matches like i think the one that they had um i think i forgot i forgot when like they i remember they after after Ilya won the belt they uh had a they had a couple in WXW, yeah. And I remember, and I remember one of them being like really fucking good. Like obviously all of them are, but like one in particular with like a, a lot of a lot of handwork that Ilya was doing was like really good. I like the I like the progress one. I really I really like the NXT UK one. But like you said, like when we're like doing a list like this and like what makes something stand out hmm. is that story, and you can't replicate that story no matter how good the work may be. Like for something like this like just being a great match like isn't always going to be enough right my number 28 is um 
a match I don't recall if you have mentioned yet. It's uh, Shinsuke Nakamura defending the IWGP Intercontinental title against Kazushi Sakuraba at New Japan's Wrestle Kingdom 7. Did not make my list. Really? Not at all? No, did not make my list. Not not a lot of Nakamura on here in, in general. But oh, I get that. My list. Man, but not this one, though. Like, this was... Like, for a long time, this was my only Nakamura match. Like, it was the one that had to be on here. Um, uh, yeah, it's awesome. <sighs> it really threw you off. <laughs> well, no, like, I'm thinking about whether I should tell this story. Because I've never told this story before. Because it's like, it's like multiple different parts of my life coming together in a way that they never did. Um, so I, I guess I'll tell this story publicly. Um... When this match happened, like January 4th, 2013, like I'd, I'd already been a New Japan fan for a while. Um, like I, I'd been really in some form or fashion, been a New Japan fan since I became a wrestling fan in late 2007 um, and had been like watching, watching Wrestle Kingdom live since 2011 um, or yeah, 2011 um, and had been fully on board in 2012, like with, with the Okada win and with, uh, Shabbat and Sakuraba coming back and King of Pro Wrestling 2012 was especially a big thing. Like I was super on board after that um, to the point that I was like really excited to watch this show. Um, uh, but the thing was like, I knew this was on the fourth, which was a Friday if memory serves correct. Um, and I knew that on the second and third, the two days before this, I was going to be sitting in the back of a minivan for like 10 or 12 hours a day, uh, driving back up North from Florida uh, because my best friend at the time, my high school best friend, uh, and his family and I had spent a little over a week down in Clearwater Beach, Florida, um, just vacationing. Uh, like their their cousin or something had a condo down there that we were able to rent out or something. Um, and I like there was a backyard wrestling show that I had attended the year before, and I, I convinced my buddy to come with me and work on it. Um, and so like we just made a vacation of it, real spur of the moment. Um, and so we're. Uh, I knew we were going to be driving back from that and it was going to be hard to watch this because I was going to come back and immediately go to bed and wake up in the middle of the, one, the night to watch a long wrestling show. Um, but you know, I was young and I was dumb and importantly, I had the whole weekend. Like I was in college at this point and I knew I didn't have to be back at school until Tuesday. Um, I had a, I had a Greyhound ticket for Monday that I was going to get me there. Uh, I think the day that the, um, the day that the dorms opened up again. So I knew I had like all weekend to recover from the experience of watching the show. Um, but the thing is my girlfriend who I've, I've written about before. Um, my girlfriend at the time, her birthday happens to be January the 4th. And this was the first birthday she was going to celebrate while the two of us were a couple. Like, we had known each other the year before. We'd been close friends the year before, but, like, she was dating somebody else, and it was just a different situation. Um, and this was going to be the first time that, uh, like, we'd become a couple the, the previous spring and, and been together for a while. So this was going to be the first time that we'd actually celebrate her birthday. And so we're driving up from Florida, taking the long way around, because, like, the, the, on the way down, we had we come through Kentucky and eastern Tennessee and Atlanta, and we decided fuck driving through Atlanta. It is the worst experience you can have in the United States of America. And so we decided we were going to take the long way around and go through like the Florida panhandle and up through Alabama and shit. And so we're driving up and I think, I think this happened as we were crossing the state line between Florida and Alabama. Like it was still pretty early in the trip. 
and we're driving up when I get a text message while I'm sitting in this van for my girlfriend. And she's like, so, Hey, what if I drove up from Virginia and you took the bus down from Indiana and we got to Berea, the, the city in Eastern Kentucky where we went to school, uh, we got to Berea and we crashed on somebody's couch because the dorms weren't open yet. Um, what if we did all that and we celebrated my birthday together? Because uh, we hadn't celebrated my birthday um, a couple weeks before uh, in, in late November because it happens to coincide with like uh, Thanksgiving break. Like it's it's something we never get to do as a as a couple or as like me and my uh me and my college friends. So she was like, what if we met up and we celebrated both of our birthdays together? Cause we, we weren't able to do that. What if we do that? And so immediately I'm just like, well, fuck <laughs> because I can't miss my girlfriend's first birthday while we're a couple. Like that's, that's boyfriend one one shit. Like you cannot come back from that if you miss that shit. So I knew like, I had to come through here. Um, and I knew like it wasn't, it's not expensive to change your ticket on the Greyhound as long as you're, you're taking the same trip. Like if you just want to switch days, like it, it only takes like 20 or 30 bucks um, as long as you're not like trying to go somewhere different. Uh, so I knew it wasn't going to be expensive to switch a ticket around, but I knew like the itinerary was going to be difficult because like there's only so many buses that come through a small town like Berea every single day like there's one that goes north at like uh 7 or 8 a.m and then there's another one coming south at 3 p.m so i knew that bus was going to get there at 3 p.m and it was going to give us like plenty of time throughout the evening to hang out and celebrate her birthday and all that but in order for me to be on that bus that was getting there at 3 p.m i was going to have to leave indianapolis at like 8 a.m that morning and so suddenly i'm faced with a situation where I'm in the backseat of a van two days straight for like 10 or 12 hours. And then as soon as I get home in Indiana, I have to immediately go to bed and then wake up in the middle of the night and watch a long, exciting Japanese wrestling show. And as soon as it's over, hop in a car with my best friend and drive to Indianapolis for an hour. Um, and I think we sped there in order we had to really like, we had to really like speed up there. Cause I think the show ran long immediately hop on a bus take like a fucking seven hour bus trip south which includes like sitting in the fucking cincinnati greyhound station for hours just twiddling my thumbs and arrive in berea and hang out with my girlfriend and a bunch of my friends all night and sleep on somebody's couch and just be miserable and exhausted um and so i did all that and on some level i think it made the show better (laughs) because it was just like such a such a like a, a frantic thing like i was such a like a a, a ball of energy the, the whole time i was watching this show just because i was i was so excited to see it and i was determined to watch as much as like as, as much of this thing as i could um and so like the experience of watching the show was awesome and yeah like watching it back now this match still rules like it's it's the closest we've come to um closest we've come to like replicating enochism in new japan in decades like it's it's completely unlike anything that new japan was doing at the time and certainly nothing like what they're doing today uh it's real short and sweet it's like 11 minutes long like it's one of the shortest matches on this list um it's got tons of great grappling like some of the best shooty grappling that the company's seen in years um 
it's super impactful like nothing gets nothing gets needlessly brushed off nothing gets immediately forgotten um he gets the most out of nakamura like we were talking about like we don't have very much nakamura on these lists like he's a guy who's kind of frustrating because because on paper he's got like a really on paper he's got a real urgent style but he's so rarely wrestles such a such a such a unique background comparatively too totally yeah like like you know like looking at his background and like looking at what he becomes like he became like again like this weird mix of like ultra magnetizing performer but at the same time this guy wearing fucking leather like leather like leather pants and all these like crazy outfits like is the guy that can go out there and like believably grapple with sakuraba to some extent (laughs) yeah like i I think sakuraba does so much to bring the best out of him to bring some urgency to this match and to 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 boil him down to his barest essentials and really make the most of those ingredients um and it does a great job of playing into like uh not the history these guys have with each other but the history they have in mma like sakuraba does his his famous spot of like a double stomp to a guy who's in a guard who he can't really attack um uh nakamura takes a a brutal new to the face when he goes for a takedown something that that sort of lost him a match a famous match all those years ago like it's just in in every in every conceivable way this is just an incredibly exciting incredibly memorable match that really holds up yeah i'm not i'm nothing bad i've nothing bad to say about this this might like be one of the ones that go into into the oversight pile yeah but no i have nothing everything that you said about there i'm like i'm in a complete agreement with and again like almost like watching this match almost feels like it's a different world mm. like it really feels like a completely different world from where we are in 2021 it's it's really like nothing they do is anything like this anymore mm. all right my number 28 is sasha banks versus bailey from nxt takeover brooklyn whoop, whoop. and i had this at uh i want to say like 93 something like that yeah um i kind of, kind of surprised is, i guess it's like relatively low for you um, well, like at the time, uh, like in 2015, it was like, it didn't make my top 10 of the year. Like, I think it was something, I think it was in the teens somewhere. So like that kind of reflects what this list looks like. Totally fair. Um, while I, um, I look back on this and I can, I kind of feel that like Bailey's push, like gets, is like kind of, uh, comes out of the, comes out of necessity. Really, if we totally. like, you know, if any, if anyone like, you know, like, I think people like weren't really, I haven't really been honest about that, um, on some level. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally comes out of necessity. Everybody because, got called up. <laughs> yeah, like, like they're calling up Sasha, Becky, and Charlotte all at once. Um, so that kind of takes away from it a little bit when you like when when you really go back and look at it, and you kind of like you know as much as as much as we love Bailey, like, yeah, you kind of like wish for something that's like feel like less a little bit more organic and natural feeling, but like. I've also been watching NXT from the like you know from the time Bailey debuted. Sure. And I've always loved Bailey and uh just loved the character and um thought that she displayed that she could be really good when given the chance to go out, go out and wrestle. And to see her finally get a chance to be what I think she could have been, which is like you know this mm. big gigantic you know just lovable baby face yeah going up against sasha banks you know so brash and arrogant and controls the and, co- and controls the room as soon as she walks in and just yeah like someone big, who, someone who felt like the biggest wrestler in the world at that time yeah like you know like her big extravagant entrance that's you know her coming out and her coming out in the truck like yeah. like 
she comes across like the biggest star in the world, and then here's Bailey with some fucking, <laughs> and, and, like, you know, with, with some inflatable tube men. Yeah, just a and, little like, girl. Yeah, you know, but it, like, is perfect. If, it, you know, it, you know, despite how unnatural it may feel to look back on, like, the story of Bailey versus the world and Bailey versus, like, this world-beating champion, it still, res- it still resonates, like, perfectly. And... Uh, this is like you know significantly shorter than the match they would have at NXT Takeover Respect. I think this match is like fifteen minutes. Yeah, but it's, it's relatively short. Yeah, and like but it tells the story so effectively, and it's such a big moment. It's such a big deal. I'm watching this live, uh, I this was this was the match I was watching the show for. Yeah, like I was watching this because I wanted to see Bailey versus Sasha Banks. Right, absolutely. And like to like no, I was completely enthralled and absorbed into what i was watching and to witness the moment um really was felt like felt like you're watching history there right that second mm. like obviously we know that we know the history of uh women as it pertains to wwe and not just wwe like wrestling as a whole and that was the first time in my lifetime and i was like obviously the w- w- women have had good matches in wwe like they had them earlier that year <laughs> you know like you know like in 2015 like yeah. you know the becky match that was on my list right right four way yeah. even charlotte versus uh sasha from nxt nxt revolution like there's been good women's matches there's been matches that they try to prop up yeah as historical women's matches like emma versus Paige or charlotte versus natalia like yeah. they have matches that like are good or they try to prop up as good this was the first time that i really felt like holy shit like this might become normal yeah this might become an actual thing like we might have women's wrestlers who are you know given the time of day given the chances to go out there and really perform and engage with the audience in a way that the male wrestlers have always had the privilege to do yeah and to watch that happen in real time i i I can't i can't stress enough like how big this felt and like their other encounter, uh, you know, a few, a couple, a couple months uh, away from this, is higher on my list, and I okay. feel like uh, I figured, yeah, yeah, and I, I don't have more in that vein to say about it when I get there. But you know, we talk about matches and their significance, and like you know, a lot of that stuff being you know being what separates like a great match on a technical level and a work level. And, you know, something that, like, will make that list, like, you right. know, has the work, it has, you know, both, the moment. And this match still is that moment. And some people prefer the Brooklyn match, and I get it, because, like, it is that moment. It's, like, right. this big triumphant victory for the lovable babyface. Uh, and I can't say I blame them, because this match, like, really is, like, set in history. Yeah, like you were saying, um, like, this was... It... Like, I don't think it's fair to say, like, oh, this is where women start to get good. Like, this is where women learn to wrestle or anything. I think that's very regressive. Um, But this is, like, this is where it catches on. Like, this is where people start to get convinced that, like, oh, shit, like, this is something special. This is something we need to pay attention to. This is something good. Like, just capital G, good. Um, And that is really notable. Like, you can't talk about the 2010s without talking about a match like this. Um, and it's only in the 90s for me just because, like, I think it's it's sort of uh, mechanically clunky in a way that we're going to talk about later with, with some other uh, NXT women's matches. Um, but, like, the moment is just so undeniable. 
Like this was such it, it felt like such a huge deal. I remember watching this and being so mad that it wasn't the main event and that yeah. these women matches continued to not be the main event. Like um, like like after like, the, like like Balor versus Sting. <laughs> I mean, Balor versus uh, Owens is like yeah the main event here. Like, like who gives granted, a shit? <laughs> like, like granted, like these are like two, like those are two big stars. Like Balor's a big star. Sure. Kevin o- like Kevin Owens is like really awesome. Like totally. You know, like this is like like we should care. Like I like I want to care about this, but fuck Bailey versus Sasha is like yeah. why I'm here. It was it was such a big deal. Like it it and it was so gratifying too because like the process of of people starting to pay attention to NXT like took many years. I think it took it took longer than people really recognize uh to the point that like uh, truly like it's not until I think the likes of like Johnny Gargano and Adam Cole start to be the focus of the show that people begin to recognize it as the third brand as opposed to just developmental. Like it, it was it was a long time coming um when we would get all those we we get like we get like those internal WWE numbers about like how many people were watching both the main roster and NXT and NXT was always dwarfed by the main roster. Um, and so like that process of like getting people to come in and start caring about these characters um, was slow coming, but this was one of those moments where it was just like, everybody get the fuck in here. You're missing out. And it was, it was so great to see people like get on board with a match like this. Cause it's, it, it felt huge. All right, we can move on to 27. Funny enough, my number 27 is another Bailey match in NXT at Brooklyn. It's Asuka defending the NXT Women's Championship against Bailey at NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 2. Well, okay, I have this I have this at 74. Okay. Um we talked about this a couple of years ago cuz you and I both love this a whole lot. Um and so I really don't have a whole lot to add beyond that, but it's 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 this emotion it's like the exact opposite of brooklyn one in every way yeah it's 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 like this complete dismantling of this character who the year before had such a triumphant long time coming win um it's it's this emotional heartbreaking character study of of one of the best baby faces of the decade taking on someone who is who is just so much better than her in every conceivable way but she refuses to quit refuses to go down easy and refuses to accept her fate like it has um like i was saying it has some of that signature clunkiness of of earlier nxt stuff especially the earlier nxt women's stuff um where a lot of the spots are a little too choreographed or a little too telegraphed or something um but the emotional core of the match is so strong that like i can't not love it like it couldn't it couldn't not have a spot on this list um so many other matches like this like especially in NXT, so many other men's matches after this are just so full of like blubbering or um, people like losing their minds over kickouts and stuff like that. Stuff that like or, never or, or, really or people or people that just aren't that interesting or, or just aren't that interesting. Absolutely, like it, it, it's it's it, it, these are there are so many NXT matches after this that that try to aim for something as dramatic as this, but but completely fail for one reason or another. And here, like watching Bailey go from being frustrated to as fiery as ever, even in the face of utter doom, like watching her stubborn refusal to quit is so much more interesting and endearing than anything I've ever seen from anybody else in NXT, including people who have matches higher than this. Like this was, this was such a huge moment I thought at the time. Um, And it felt, it sort of felt like you and I were like two of the only people who really recognized it too. Yeah. Like I, I think I've talked about it. Um, 
a lot in the chat, and like I, I remember I reviewed this match uh, for Wrestling Warriors into the podcast with you about it. Like I've talked a bunch about this. Yeah. Like this match is a victim of having to go on um, before. Uh huh. I mean, at me after uh, DIY versus Revival. Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. Like this. Like, and I think that like you know obviously DIY versus Revival then goes on to become like this like you know uh uh the super re- the super revered like uh yeah you know match we're talking about tag team wrestling you know in, in the last few years that like oscar versus bailey gets completely forgotten here and like this happened to oscar versus bailey twice yep like this ha- like this happened in uh the dallas one yeah when they when they went on after revival versus Amer- american alpha and happened here again and like i get it like you know the revival was super fucking exciting too like this, like I, like they deserved every bit of praise that they got. They were working right. really awesome matches. Nothing but against like, those guys. Yeah, but like in turn, I think that really did become a thing where like the work that Asuka and Bailey were doing, like the stories that they were telling, just got completely overlooked. And you talk about seeing Bailey so uh, fiery in the face of um, a complete buzzsaw, and like you're right, this is the kind of like perfect companion piece to uh, to like the you know to to Bailey versus Sasha that I had at 28. Mm-hmm. Like you talk about Bailey still being kind of childlike, you know, facing Sasha, and like this is Bailey kind of like all grown up in some in, in some regard. Well, like, it's interesting because like she, you, like you can see her in moments in this match, like reverting to that childlike nature, like where she gets hit in the face and she immediately like curls up into a ball, or you see her just like slapping the mat in anger, like like having a tantrum like a child would. But you're right, like by the end, by the end, she's all woman. And, and she's all like going down in a blaze of glory, and it's it is awesome to see. Yeah, like this is like something that again is out of character for Bailey, and I think that's like you know to, uh, uh, something I really do love about wrestling that I talk about all the time is that I love moments that like you do something out of character that mm-hmm. like really makes something memorable. And Bailey, like she had, like no matter everything she had done during this reign, whether you know facing Nia Jax and Eva Marie and Carmella and like going through and going through and going through all this stuff. Like, never had a moment like this that, like, stood out. Like, this is Bailey taking her final stand. This is where Bailey is, like, planting her flag. Like, right. I, I, I had, like, I had chills watching it. Like, just, like, to see her do that, and it felt so organic and natural compared to, like, other times when people do that. And it does feel hammy and forced. And, like, you're parodying something that you saw someone do in Japan. Right. And, like, this is what fighting spirit looks like and shit right. like that. Like, this is so organic feeling coming from somebody who feels like they're at their wit's end. That, like, they worked for this moment. They did everything right. And then here comes this complete monster who, like, you can't do anything about mm-hmm. other than just kind of be like, you know what? I guess I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go out on my shield, right? And um, you know, it sucks that we couldn't, you know, uh, I would, I would have liked to see more Bailey in an in an NXT just for a little bit longer, but mm-hmm. like she served her purpose, and Oscar looked like a million bucks in beating her those two times, and there was no better way for Bailey to go out than uh, facing Oscar here. Hmm. My number twenty seven is Kenny Omega versus Tetsuya Naito from uh new japan pro wrestling it's the g1 climax finals from 2017 okay this one's all you because it didn't make my list omega and naito are such an interesting case study right like and this kind of goes into like future things and um i guess stuff that was like pertaining at the time but they're so interesting because like 
both fan bases almost kind of felt threatened by the other one. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, and like, and like, and, and the funny thing is, I think to look back on Naito versus Omega is like, neither of these choices were wrong here. Like, yeah. in any in any scenario, nothing here was wrong. Like, they both had legitimate gripes and stories to conclude with Okada. <laughs> you know, like, like everything here, like, was perfectly like reasonable for either guy to be the one that got the quote unquote like got the moment right. to go and face Okada. So, like, this almost like like this like tribal like feeling that Naito and Okada and that Naito and Omega had almost like you know went beyond the fan base. Like, went beyond the fan base. It almost felt like Naito and Omega believed that within themselves too when they wrestled. Like it had that same kind of like I tension. Bet at least one of them felt that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I think even here, like, there's this kind of tension. Like, all right, one of these guys is gonna go beat Okada. Yeah, and like, obviously, like Naito when well. he, like you know Naito went like again, it feels like it. It feels like it, right? Yes, like, as if they, they should have. <laughs> yeah, like obviously Naito doesn't go on and beat Okada, but it has this moment of this. Whoever wins this is gonna go beat Okada. Yeah. <laughs> And like it feels that imp- it feels that important. Um, I like the other match more, and we'll get and we'll and we'll and we'll get to that and um on the on the third episode. Sure. But again, like the spottiness between these guys, I love it. Love it feels reckless. It feels dangerous in like a lot of ways that I re- a lot of ways that I really enjoy. Like I think Ken- I think Kenny versus Naito. I mean Kenny versus Ibushi, and even like oh, and even like Naito versus Ibushi. Like, while there's still, like, kind of, like, dangerous aspects to it, like, it still feels, like, you know, a little bit more, uh, I guess, choreographed than, like, right. Naito and Omega feel. Naito and Omega feel like they're out to kill each other. And, yeah, I mean, like, of, of all of the, truly, of all of the big, spotty matchups that these guys love to have multiple times, um, of all the ones that I don't actually like all that much, this has got to be my favorite. Yeah, like, like this is super dangerous feeling yeah all throughout like you know the 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 one on the when they're when they're both when they're both on when they're both on on the turnbuckle the table the table the table uh i think it was what the table pile driver spot like so much ridiculous shit here and while it's super fun and full of action and the crowd is so enamored with naito and god like Despite like how much like I I used to like I still like the guy but I used to love the guy, and um you know it did get it did get annoying admittedly like you know to see like how how Naito fans like you know you know did act about him like you can't help but get swept up in the moment like even even with Omega's like surging popularity like dude was a huge star coming out of coming out of Wrestle Kingdom this year and to see Naito still like you know still have that control like no. Naito was who we want to win here. This is the this is what we want, and Naito, and we're gonna like wail on Naito as much as we need to in order to get this moment that we've been desperately begging and, cra- and craving. Right. Uh, still, it still sticks with me. Um, it, I th- I I don't, I don't remember where I had it back when we did back when we did the 20, 2017 list. I think it was top. I think it was top five or six. I'm not particularly sure. It had to be high. Yeah, I had it. I had I had it high, but like I you know, obviously, a lot of a lot of stuff happened that year that sure. was in New Japan. I liked more totally. Um, but 
yeah, this match is like still super memorable in like a really crowded year, New Japan wise. Like, you know, like obviously Okada's obviously Okada stuff, but like even like the Tanahashi versus Naito series that they had that they had that year, mm-hmm. like even Kushida you know, Kushida versus Hiromu, like it's a it's a pretty crowded year. Right. And like with all of that being said, like to go back and watch this G one and watch this G one final, it still feels just as special as um when I was watching it in the moment. Okay. Well, to uh, round out this episode, uh, like I mentioned last time, I'm going to be ending each of these episodes with a John Cena match. Uh, My number 26, the last one we'll talk about tonight, is John Cena defending the WWE Championship against Mark Henry at WWE Money in the Bank 2013. Okay, um... You're gonna, have to, you're, gonna have to, you're gonna have to sell me on this. I remember the, the match is good. The match really? is like, like definitely no, the ma- no, the match is good, but like it's definitely like more of a thing where like the promo gets remembered more. So like I want to, I sure. want to hear you talk about the match. I think that's fair. Um, really, uh, a lot of it comes down to like you know how much I like Cena and just his formula. Um, and so this is the match that asks um a really brave question of what if we took the foolproof. John Cena versus Monster Formula, but the monster was an all-time great trash talker. <laughs> um, and that's what we get here. Like, this has to be Mark Henry's career performance. He's physically as dominant as ever, and he just tears into John Cena verbally. Um, just just being like, oh, is that all you got? And, and, and just ripping into him nonstop throughout the entire thing. Um, but beyond that, he also gives, like, um, he gives a great, like, character performance. Like, um, he's really good at like projecting frustration, uh, mounting frustration throughout the entire match, both in terms of like his emotional acting as well as like what he does in the ring, like his his literal actions. Um, as he by the end, when he comes to realize that he can't beat John in a straight up match, he starts just outright cheating, basically, like right in front of the referee, like has no bones about <laughs> has no bones about what he's doing. Um, and it's and it's great to see that to see that sort of like change over time of a guy who in the build to this and in a great build to this was just like all bluster was all saying like oh you're done dude like this is this is my time i'm finally coming for that belt um and then in turn cena is incredible as he always is like just bumping and selling his ass bumping and selling his ass off for this guy um crumbling underneath the weight of mark henry both figuratively and literally um taking like he takes shit in this matches he takes shit in this match like takes spot in this spots in this matches that like no other top star of WWE would take like let's like lets himself look vulnerable in a way that like is practically unheard of for anybody who was in this position like you got to understand this is the title ring coming off of beating the rock at WrestleMania like this is in some ways this is like peak john um and he looks vulnerable in a way here in his last successful defense of the belt um, that like nobody before him would ever allow and like he really has to like struggle to do his moves like he has to put in so much work to do what in other matches just feels effortless list just what feels effortless um and i love to see him do that sort of thing against against a much larger opponent um and related to that like i uh i want to say i watched this like not at the time i, I think i watched it a couple met a couple months later um, and I liked it a whole lot then, but then I revisited it, uh, to, to get it onto this list. And I was really like blown away by how much Henry gets against Cena. 
Like, he gets to kick out of the attitude adjustment once. Um, he gets to escape the STF once before he finally gets put in it and taps out to it. Um, he never actually gets to hit his own finish, and therefore John never kicks out of it, so he gets to protect it in that way. Um, he gets to look, like, really strong, not just physically, but just, like, you know, in terms of his character and everything. He, he gets to look strong in a way that, like, even here, eight years later, is, like, kind of surprising for a guy who, after this, is not really relevant in the company anymore. Um, and this is basically, like, what he gets to go out on. Um, and a lot of that comes down to, like, who Cena is and what he does and, and how his formula allows for that sort of thing. Allows for somebody to put him through the ringer and for him to put them down in, in a way that is, like, I don't know, respectful <laughs> in a way that, like still makes them look good. Like we talked about it last time with, with the Daniel Bryan match. Like I think the fact that he keeps beating these people in these matches, like doesn't necessarily make them look worse because he has to do so much in order to pull it off. Um, when you're, when you were compiling your list, like obviously like you just said, you, you said you liked it, but like, uh-huh. you know, I knew that you really liked that, uh, punk versus uh Henry match. Did you expect the, did, you didn't expect this, to expect to have like a second Henry match on here. Did you? Well, no, I did. I did expect to have this on here. Okay. I certainly didn't expect it to be this high, but like I was, I was putting the thing together and I got, I got through my top 25 and I was just looking at what I had left and I was like, shit. Like, I think this has to come next. Yeah. I told, I can totally see it. Like I said, like this is, this is a really good match. I do. And en- I do enjoy this. Um, a lot and um i think you i think you raise a good point of like the getting heightened by having this uh really great mark henry performance not just as this monster to overcome but like you know like vocally like you know like you know i think that's an aspect of wrestling that kind of like it can be you know in in the nxt sense you know when they go for like the making movies stuff (laughs) and talking too much like i always think of like Cedric Alexander and Mustafa Ali having like a perfectly totally. good match and then for some reason like so you know, I'm the heart and I'm the soul and then going in and like thinking each other's like well, what the fuck like what was yeah. that for like what was but, that yeah but like but like this it's like shit talking is different like uh-huh. genuine like like disparaging comments while you're beating right. somebody up and you're as believable about it as Mark Henry Absolutely. like again like just like it can definitely elevate a match from being like a really good, uh, you know, a monster getting slain thing hmm. to like, yeah, I can totally see it landing, landing a spot here. Uh, for me, to close this out at 26, I have LA Park versus Roosh Woo! from uh, Lucha, from Lucha Libre Elite, July 14th, 2016. And I had that at, uh, I want to say like 45, somewhere around there. It was earlier on this episode. This match yeah, is uh <laughs> like like the most rebellious thing on either of our list, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Uh and that stands out a fucking lot. Um like to know that these two and like, you know, like we know LA Park, we know like, you know, like you know, LA Park is prone to going to going and doing some shit like that like he, he's he's the other park he's whatever do whatever the fuck he wants he does what he wants yeah like but to see it happen in like arena mexico yeah and break every rule possible <laughs> yep like while this is great and like la park and Drush have like you know chemistry that we don't need to tell you about sure it's tangible feels real it's violent it's fun you can't take your eyes off of it 
like it's a, it's a you know it's a million it's a million miles a minute you don't know you don't know when someone go, go, is going to throw a bucket or come at somebody like you know like it's always it's always moving yeah and to like add on a rabid arena mexico right. crowd um you know when lucha libre elite was running there and to clearly see that these people are like, holy shit, they're doing this right, like right here, like right now they're doing this with blood and trash all over the fucking arena yeah. is like an unforgettable image. Like, it might not be anything that like, you know, you view as the most heart-wrenching, you know, heart-wrenching story or the most feel-good thing. Sure. Um, or all those emotional beats that like will... uh stick with stick with people like me like like me or you or other people that might be listening to this but if you want something that feels like a last stand like this like you know moment of rebellion like this almost feels like the last like moments of rouge kind of like like when you like go look at this and then like his eventual departure right from c from cmll and then the short stint in trip and uh in triple a and then now like his running roh like this almost feels like like the like the last stand of Roosh. Like, I don't belong in this era. Yeah. I am a fucking straight out of the eighties lucha brawler. I should be I should be hanging out with El Satanico. Like yeah. I am not for all this frilly dive bullshit with no blood and everyone's doing this. Like I am like I belong in I belong doing this shit. And to see LA Park fully indulge that they have the wildest, craziest, most fun match that you could that, that you could imagine in front of an in front of a an arena that is not for any of that that they don't want any of that happening uh-huh. in, you know it just it it make it makes it so memorable and uh, even though I didn't have it like you know quite this high back when we did the 2016 list like as you go back and you get further removed from time. LA Park versus Rouge in Arena Mexico just stands out so 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 much for like everything that it represented at this point in time, mm-hmm. and uh, and like st- and still represents is so fun and it's also the most rebellious thing that we've seen all decade. Yeah, like if like if you somehow weren't aware of this match, this this takes place in Arena Mexico, um, not with CMLL, the the company that runs there most often and owns the building, uh, but with Lucha Libre Elite, which was a short lived little like super promotion really so good um, yeah they're really great i miss them a lot um uh but the thing is like cmll at this point is like very much like a family friendly like tourist friendly promotion uh to the point where a lot of the stuff that they used to be known for back in the days like you know bloody brawls and all that sort of thing has been really toned down in the company to the point that like you're not supposed to bleed in this building. And so these guys come in there, like two guys who know each other, who, who know uh, CMLL well and are Roosh works for Roosh works for CMLL. Yes, at this point, Roosh is one of their bigger stars. Um, and so they're super familiar with that rule. And they come in here and just have like a straightforward brawl anyway and are bleeding all over the place and brawling all, all over the place. And you can see the referee tell them like, y'all gotta, y'all gotta stop this before, <laughs> before I, before I have to, before I have to call this match off. And eventually he just does like Roosh takes like a, a fucking like trash can to the head or something and sells 
like into the barricade and the referee runs over and raises his hand on a shoot and it's just like we're done here this is a, this is a dq i'm, I'm declaring the re- roosh the and winner they, and they keep going because fuck you yeah and it's <laughs> and it's the best thing in the world to watch these guys decide fuck it we're gonna keep going and to see them showered in in both coins and trash by the fans <laughs> it's it's such a brazen Ra- thing. like ra- like rapturous applause like yeah it's like the most insane thing that you'll ever see it's and like in like and, and this is an interesting year for Lucha, like you said. Like like this sure. is like still like you know we're, we're, we we got a couple more Dragon you know Dragon Lee versus a uh, Kamatachi Kam- matches. We yeah, also yeah. got a uh, Kamatachi versus Maximo. Um, and, you got that uh, Canis Lupus versus Trauma Uno match. Yeah, like there's like there's a like a bunch of like good shit that happens in 2016. Yeah, like and the like this one for this to like stand out like yeah. among everything that happened. What was a pretty which was a pretty good year for Lucha in general really speaks to yeah. how uh like i said this stands out for so yeah, many different reasons it was it was a match at a time like it felt like this was the sort of thing that like couldn't happen anymore it was just unbelievably wild but that's my 26 and that'll wrap us up for episode two here rock you oh have boy. 25 matches to go <laughs> too many we'll get to those on the next installment thank you all for listening hope you're next time